This week on BSD Now, we're going to be talking shop with Josh Petzl of FreeNAS fame, hearing about his best do's and do nots of using ZFS in production. Also, a quick look back at 2015 and a lot of the stuff starting to uh, be talked about for 2016. So welcome to another exciting year of BSD Now. Episode 123, ZFS in the Trenches, recorded January 6th, 2016. Hey, I'm your host, Chris Moore. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're glad to have you guys with us this week on our first episode of 2016. I know uh, I always hate it at the beginning of the new year, man, when I have to write checks, and for the first, like, three weeks, I'm always putting the wrong date yep. on them, right? So we'll have to go through that transition period. But <laughs> we did, we did make a, sta- a mistake earlier when I first started recording the show. I almost said 2015, yeah. so... Yes, it's officially 2016, and it's going to be an exciting year. There's a lot of stuff happening, a lot of cool releases going to be happening across all the BSDs. And, of course, uh, we should probably recap a little bit of some of 2015, mm-hmm. which leads us into our first article here. But as we start the week, we got a look back at 2015 brought to us by Larry over at Phosphorus. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he mentions a few things that stood out to him from uh, the past year. But uh, aside from an issue he mentioned where he's having trouble with tap to click on his touchpad, he wants to turn that off. He said his PCBSD experience for 2015 has been pretty good. So, Larry, first of all, if you hear this or somebody knows Larry, ping him and tell him to jump on uh, PCBSD on Freenode. Yeah, I actually uh, had the same problem with my PCBSD laptop and sent him the wiki page and bit that I used oh, okay. uh, on Twitter to solve that problem. Uh, basically, you okay. set uh, once you switch to the synaptic driver, which is off by default for some mm-hmm. reason, I have no idea why. Uh, yeah, we should probably just turn that on, huh? Be done with it. I'm not sure if it makes a difference on anybody else's laptop, but it makes a big difference on mine. Uh, but then it has yep. a, there's a sysctl that controls how close together two taps have to be to be considered a click or whatever, right? And mm-hmm. I just set it to zero, so it's impossibly short. You can't possibly do it in zero milliseconds. <laughs> you can't do it. Um, and so now tap to click doesn't work, uh, and I am much, much happier because I you know, using it to move the mouse, and sometimes if I go like mm-hmm. that really quick, it thinks that I'm trying to click on something, and I never ever am uh which just causes i think i changed another one too uh so that if my palm touches it it doesn't think i'm doing something mm-hmm. uh yeah because otherwise too. it would like think i was clicking in the middle of a block of text as i was typing and then it would erase mm-hmm. an entire block of text and then i would be yeah, very upset stuff uh you know i'm yeah, writing dots the the <laughs> yes right. and and as it is you know if i'm working on my laptop it's because i'm traveling or something so i'm like cramped up like this and some other yeah, on an uh, yes uncomfortable position and uh having your uh the mouse pad fighting with you <laughs> the trackpad fighting with you while you're trying to work in cramped confines is not fun that's right so well first of all larry hope you got that fixed but if not ping us let us know yes. maybe we can get that uh taken care of but he, uh, interestingly enough, he mentions that this really isn't his first time running BSD. He said apparently back in the ye olden days, he got NetBSD up and running on a PowerBook G3 until an update brought that experience to an abrupt halt. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know what happened there. He, I'm sure. You know, he was trying to do that by his source upgrade or whatever and had fun with that. It blew up. 
<laughs> but uh, he gave a shout out to the FreeBSD Foundation as being a great go-to source for a wrap-up on uh, all the previous year in FreeBSD mm-hmm. land. And he also mentions the great 4.4 release of Dragonfly. So good job there, guys. And some of the variants that have started to pop up, like RetroBSD and LightBSD, which we'll discuss a little bit later in the yeah, show. Yeah, more news about those. They're making some news. We'll have to see if we can get yeah, some interviews right. with people working on that. Yeah, well, a couple of them talked uh, on IRC about it. And it's basically, uh, yeah, it turns out that uh, that fork of RetroBSD is a fork of, uh, you know, BSD 2.11 uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, long before anybody ever heard, invented FreeBSD or NetBSD, the original sure. BSD 2.11, because uh, that's the one that still works on a PDP 11, which apparently people have. Mm-hmm. Well. Hey, for embedded folks, you never know. Maybe well, yes, there, uh, the interesting thing there is that hardware with like 400 kilobytes of memory. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, whatever. I guess. <laughs> but uh, he left us a little tease for 2016 that he's been doing some work with some folks on Twitter to port over, uh, I guess, Mopity, I guess is how mm-hmm. you pronounce that. But it's a Python-based uh, extensible music server. So maybe we'll have something new lands in the porch tree here. Soon. That'd be that cool. would be exciting mm-hmm. to see. I guess maybe like a Plex alternative is what it sounds like to me. For music, yeah. Yeah, I've not personally used it, but it looks interesting. Hey, the more the work, Mm -hmm. the merrier. Okay, so since we look back at 2015, now we got to take a quick look forward at 2016. Mm -hmm. Since the new year's starting, it's time to start maybe planning out your schedule. So we have a nice link here to the BSD events site where they have their calendar listing all the upcoming uh, conferences and shows where BSD is going to have a presence this Mm -hmm. year. So first of all, if you see something that's messing on there, get in touch with them and tell them so they can put it on there. But there's a lot of items on the agenda, more than your usual suspects of like BSD CAN and Mm -hmm. BSD CON. There's a lot of other conferences out there that aren't necessarily BSD focused, but have BSD presence there, like Scale Uh, and FOS. Yeah, Scale's going to have a bunch. There will also be... uh, Mm -hmm. From the sounds of it, a bunch of people from Jupiter Broadcasting, the network this podcast is on, uh, will be there. Uh, I think they'll have a live Linux action show and some other stuff, but uh, it might be interesting if you're going to be out there to look up those people and, you know, talk with other people that are fans of the show and so on. Uh, For those that don't know, that's Los Angeles, by the way. Um, I thought the dates for Scale and Fuzz were a little closer together. Maybe not. Um, Because... When I was looking at it originally, it was like, well, I'd literally have to like leave one conference in order to get to the other one. Yeah, traveling straight from one yeah. to another. Really Especially going it looks from, like they're just a week yeah. apart. Huh. But uh, oh. yeah, so Scale will be there. And then FOSDEM, uh, I will be there. I know Baptiste will be there. Benedict from the doc team. Um, Christos Provos. Uh, at least uh, George Neville Neal. Ed Ma- uh, at least 10 or 15 uh, free BSD people plus some other BSD people, mm-hmm. and on the Sunday of FOSDEM, there's an entire room just dedicated to BSD for the entire day. See, that's that's cool. So, I mean, there's a lot of places you can go and actually get in touch with the B- with various BSD folks from different mm-hmm. projects. It doesn't have to be one of the mainline BSD conferences. So, everything we got Linux Fest Northwest. If you're up in Washington yep. State, that's uh, Seattle, like Bellingham-ish or? area. Yeah, that's in April. Uh, let's see, Linux Tog, uh, OSDC. Oh, there's just all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we wanted to mention, too, OSCon in Portland, Oregon. Yes. I know, it's a nerd tech uh, so Yes, that's still, a in too. February, uh, there will be a FreeBSD presence at FAST, the File Systems and Storage Technology Conference, which is the mm-hmm. last week of February. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, like you said, AsiaBSDCon. <laughs> and then uh, yeah. I think, yeah, I think I'll be in uh, Germany for a whole week uh, to do that string of conferences there. <laughs> Uh, which sadly means I will miss uh, Linux Fest Northwest by the sounds of it. 
Uh, oh, interesting. I was going to try and make it out to that one yeah, this year. Yeah, uh, so was I. And then somebody scheduled, you know, three conferences in a row in Germany. Right. Oh, I see one problem here. BSD can is the same time as South. Yes, it is. So I won't. Uh, so I will not be at Southeast Linux Fest this year because I plan on going to BSD mm-hmm. can. But we might have to send some other. Well, uh, our, either our brother Ken or Josh. Yeah, and or uh, our producer JT will be at Self because that's his home conference. Okay. Uh, which is too nice. bad. That means he can't come to BSD can with us. But maybe we yeah, can get him to uh, meet BSD when they announce that later in the year. Yeah, that'll be in the fall. It's yeah. probably October, November. Yeah, it's usually year, after Euro, but it depends when uh, Euro gets announced as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you want to check that out. A couple things we want to remind you about these conferences. So aside from just being a cool place where you can come talk to some of the BSD developers and hang out, um, if you're thinking about uh, doing a BSD certification, maybe that's one mm-hmm. of your 2016 resolutions, um, you can take the test usually at these yeah, shows. Yeah, I know FOSDEM uh, will have it. Or Jim will be there. Because um, yeah. Benedict will be proctoring that. Uh, and... Yeah, uh, almost all these conferences, even the ones that are fairly Linuxy, as long as uh, mm-hmm. you know one of the as long as Drew or Jim or somebody else from yep. from the uh, certification projects there, they have proctors, they can yep. do it. And so, and with Benedict doing it in Europe now, I know that uh, there'll be mm-hmm. even more events with coverage. So uh, you'll be able Great. to do that. Also, if you want to submit for Asia BSDCon, you have until this Friday to get your paper in. Uh, Okay. And then BSD can is January eighteenth, January nineteenth, uh, to get your submissions in for BSD can, uh, and uh, you know, both of those are definitely worth going to. Sure, we'll be at right. both, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I will be at BSD can and Asia yep, for sure. There. Got it. Got to do those. Yep. Um, probably not Euro for right. me this year, but meet BSD. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. Obviously, it's an IX mm-hmm. one. And uh, Texas Linux Fest, I think I'm going to try and make it down to that. Um, Northwest uh, uh, Linux Fest, probably. Okay. That's tentative. Yep. But uh, And then sometimes Ohio Linux mm-hmm. Fest, just depending on what time of year it is and if it conflicts with anything else. But uh, some of those I can drive yes. to. Uh, nice. Texas might be doable for me if it doesn't land at the same time as the Cambridge thing. But I think Cambridge was at an odd time last year. And was, normally it wouldn't yeah. conflict. Is the Cambridge one just the Dev yeah, Summit just, again? Yeah, it's just uh, three full days of Dev Summit Dev stuff. Dev yeah. hacking. I went to that a couple years ago. I might need to do that again. When is the, it's usually when like, did they put the dates uh, up for that? They don't know. <laughs> they don't. It just happens. Yeah, it was like a month later than usual this year because of lack of organization. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. Personally, I find the Dev Summit's really yes. fascinating. I get a lot a lot of stuff done mm-hmm. there, so it might be good to do that one this year. And Cambridge is a very unique experience compared to all the other places mm-hmm. I've been. Well, that is true. That is true. So again, folks, take a look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you're planning out your schedule for the next year, so see if you can make it to a couple mm-hmm. of those, especially if there's one close to you. You kind of don't have an excuse. Yep. You should come out and uh, come by the booth. Usually IX sends a bunch of folks out to run like a free BSD booth, and then you'll have some uh, open BSD guys, especially at the European ones, I'd imagine. You mm-hmm. show up and you can get some swag and uh, talk with some of the developers face to face, which is always yeah, fun. That's that's oftentimes a great way to get a problem solved. Is you know, a developer may mm-hmm. be aware that there's a certain bug, but they're not really aware that it affects many people. Uh, but even yep. just one person uh, talking to them in person about it over dinner or just you know in the hallway at the conference or whatever, and then they're like, ah, I'm going to fix that now. You know, right. There's nothing that's more right. uh, motivating. You know, every developer short on time, but there's nothing more motivating than actually doing it for. Uh, someone See, you know. I think I'm 
I'm on the annoying side of that. I tend to come to these with a laptop and be like, see, something doesn't work. Fix it, somebody. Yes. Please, please. And a little begging. But, you know. Hey, hey, it gets get stuff, stuff done. done. <laughs> and uh, that's the important thing. That's right. So, Alan, so for this next story, tell us a little bit about this. I guess there was an article making the rounds talking about, I guess, some of the hidden costs of using ZFS for your home now. Yeah, so... so- Tell us your take on that, being one of the resident ZFS experts. Uh, so I'm not going to say the article's FUD or anything, but I know that a bunch of ButterFS people are trying to use it as FUD. Um, mm-hmm. But so the this article recently uh, came out and it's trying to you know, dissuade people from using ZFS on their home DAS because of this perceived inflexibility. Uh, specifically, you know, if you set up your uh, home NAS with, you know, six drives or whatever, when you want to add... Uh, capacity to it, you can there are kind of limitations on the ways you can do that, and it could end up with you having to have more parity drives than you would want. Uh, sure. But who's ever said that's too much parity? I want to risk losing my data, <laughs> right? I know, right? Uh, so the article points out that well, most experienced users with ZFS already know, but a lot of newcomers are not strictly aware, only vaguely aware, maybe that expanding a ZFS pool is not always as straightforward as uh, you think it might be. Right? If you set up with a RAID Z with you know six disks, so two, uh, the capacity of parity. the two of the drives is used up as parity. Although it's not those mm-hmm. two specific drives that are the parity; the parity is spread out across sure. all the drives. But uh, anyway, if you want to grow that you can't actually redo a RAID Z to make it wider to fit more disks because the data mm-hmm. would have to be redistributed and that would be very complicated. Um, so the other option is to add a whole second uh, RAID Z VDEV. But, you know, ideally you want them to be about the same, uh, they want to be the same number of disks so that they have the same IOPS and performance characteristics. Sure. Uh, so all of a sudden that means if you want to add space to your six drive ZFS pool, you have to add six more drives, which is, you know, mm-hmm. can be relatively expensive, but also means, you know, do you have that many extra ports, ports on your motherboard and so on? Um, so, really, the recommendation I have is if that's something you plan to be able to do, is to just incrementally grow your your storage machine. Maybe mirrors are better because then you can add drives two at a time. Uh, Mm-hmm. Although RAID uh, Z VDEVs are not entirely inflexible, you can upgrade one in place. But you know, if you had one that was made up of six one terabyte drives a couple of years ago, you could then one at a time swap those out for five terabyte drives, and then once all the drives have been replaced, then yeah. all of a sudden your pool is five times bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, there's a couple of different options. So you know, if you have uh, six disks and you did three mirrors or two disks each you'd only have say if they're two terabyte disks you'd have six terabytes of usable space instead of eight uh, that you would get with raid z2 it does mean that when you want to grow it you can just add two more disks at a time sure. and you know as over time uh say you you know your your machine the case that you have and the ports you have on your motherboard mean that eight drives is your limit but when you started, you could only afford uh, four or six drives. So you did that with two sets of mirrors. Mm-hmm. Then over time, you add two more drives and two more drives. Chances are that over every time you add new drives, those new drives are actually going to be slightly bigger. Uh, and because mm-hmm. they're mirror sets, you would actually still get that usable extra space. Because as long as uh, the mirror, you get the space of whichever the two drives is smallest. And normally, you want them to be the same size. So you sure. know if you had four two terabyte drives and then when you added two more drives you added three terabyte drives and the next time you added five terabyte drives uh you have all the space 
And now you're you're out of physical room, but what you could do is one at a time replace uh two of your the two uh drives in one mirror of your smallest drives. So taking out a bunch of the one terabyte drives and putting in five terabytes, and now you got that extra space and just keep doing that. And basically as you rotate around and around, your drives just keep getting bigger and you get the extra space. You know, in the end, maybe it costs a little bit more, but it gives you that more flexibility. Uh, but I think the important things that the article didn't really cover are the disadvantages to doing what they wanted to do, right? So they're basically saying there's a ZFS tax when you expand the pool of being forced to have more parity, uh, right? If you do mm -hmm. the two different VDEFs. But if you don't, if you had 12 drives and only RAID Z2, um, compared to having two separate RAID Zs of six drives each, so the same total number of drives, uh, you're going to get twice the IOPS performance out of having the two separate VDEVs. Uh, sure. Also, the resilver time uh, for replacing any one drive is going to be a lot faster because you're only going to have to resilver the smaller fraction of data. Um, mm -hmm. And so that makes a big difference. So especially, you know, if the resilver time is already approaching a couple of days, then sure. uh, the chance of losing a second disk is higher. Uh, and mm -hmm. if you're using RAID Z1, then a second disk means you're you're over. All your data is gone. Uh, and that's why most people would use RAID Z2 uh, or 3 instead of uh, that. So there's quite a bit of an advantage to using the smaller sets of disks rather than larger. Um, so there's the IOPS time, the resilver time difference, but also just performance in general. If you did it with mirrors, uh, it would be even faster because you get that many more separate VDEFs. Uh, and sure. mirrors also just in general give you better read speeds because you can read uh, all the data is on both drives so you can read from both of them at once and get even higher speed. So if you want the flexibility, then uh, mirrors are actually better. Uh, even though they're maybe slightly more expensive, the ability to you know only have to buy two drives at a time instead of six can actually be better. It's um, a good deal, yeah. But the big thing is, if your other option is to use MDADM or ButterFS, uh, you have to then weigh the risk of all your files going away. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, there have been bugs in MDADM where it's lost all your data. ButterFS has lost lots of people's data. ZFS hasn't. That's right. That's why they store things like, you know, the Star Wars mm -hmm. movie on it and stuff. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, Important so, things. <laughs> yes, there's this little bit of a cost to ZFS, although it's not hidden. It's right there in all the documentation. Um, you know, it's just a trade-off, whether you want to do more flexibility and more speed or if you really need the storage efficiency. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in general, you don't want to have your RAID Z stripes be wider than eight or nine disks, maybe 12 at the very max. Um because of resilver times, but also IOPS and so on. Uh, you know, if you have 12 disks, it's like, well, I could do it all as one big thing with like RAID Z3, or I could do it two smaller ones, RAID Z2, RAID Z2s, and then mm -hmm. I, I lose one more drive to parity, but I get twice the IOPS out of it, and I have just more resiliency. And, you know, if I decide I, want, I need to expand the pool, I only have to buy six more disks instead of 12 more disks. Sure. <laughs> uh, and and so on, uh, but basically, mirrors are always the answer, uh, except for when you can't afford them. Okay. Well, thanks, mm -hmm. Alan. Well, next up, we have some uh, ongoing mm -hmm. work that's been taking place uh, in the FreeBSD Fabricator, which is the reviews.freebsd.org site. We have some patches that have now moved out of that into FreeBSD uh, mm -hmm. current. 
but uh, specifically one of the patches that's been in there for a while has been the support for boot environments in the Beastie mm -hmm. menus. So it's been in Fabricator for a while. Yeah, We've had I it guess PCBSD for like four or five. Originally months now. posted it in the well. summer and had a little bit of work, but it had sat there, uh, mm -hmm. basically waiting to be ready for a while. Um, but yeah. then uh, Thomas uh, Sum over at Illumos uh, wanted to replace Grub in their boot process. Mm -hmm. And so he ported the FreeBSD bootloader to Illumos. And in doing so, uh, some uh, I mentioned to him, hey, check out my boot environment thing. And he grabbed that mm -hmm. and did it the Illumos way, uh, which is actually back to having a config file instead of actually reading the pool like mine does. Um, oh, really? Because that's how their bmin tool works. Um, oh, okay. Because that's how they did it with Grub, right? So, um, sure, sure. So in that, he found a couple of bugs in my code and contributed back and uh, basically with his help and uh, with more fourth code from Devin Teske, but uh, Tumas also did a huge amount of fourth, uh, including actually parsing the entire uh, Beadmin config file on Illumos in fourth, which just no. melted my brain. You know, <laughs> the approach <coughs> no, the approach we took in FreeBSD was specifically to avoid trying to do anything in yes. fourth other than draw yes, a menu. Some pain involved there. That's um, right. <laughs> Anyway, so I committed that on uh, New Year's Eve, actually, uh, and that okay. should end up in uh, FreeBSD 10.3 and 11. Uh, when you're merging it back. Um, hopefully in the next couple of days. Um, okay. Although some people pointed out it, there might be a bug with the way it works on serial consoles, uh, and hmm. if you try to use the boot environment menu when you have ZFS but don't actually have boot environment configured, it can look a little weird. So I'm going to try to add okay. a couple things to that for it. Um, Books. But cool. the problem that it faced was it doesn't work with the UFI yet. Although currently our UFI mm -hmm. doesn't boot ZFS yet. But uh, well, kind of, sort of. There's patches right, floating around, too. which we're you about to get to. Uh, but okay, yep. <laughs> uh, in some even further uh, cross-project collaboration with Illumos, uh, mm -hmm. Thomas Soons is like, "Well, we need UEFI on uh, Illumos as well. And since I just ported over your nice loader with menu and everything, how would I teach your UEFI code?" how to draw a menu. And so there's uh, actually, uh, no, this uh, this is done in the C part. Uh, well, oh, it, really? it's in the C part, okay. The fourth expects the C to be able to do serial sure. drawing, and so it adds both. Anyway, so uh, Tumas right. actually uh, wrote the code to add terminal, terminal emulation to our EFI code. Uh, hmm. So now committed as of three hours ago, um, FreeBSD's UEFI loader can actually draw the Beastie menu. So That's now great. the ZFS boot environment stuff, uh, I need to do like one or two little things to hook it up, uh, but we'll be able to draw the ZFS boot menu. Uh, so I won't have to do the trick where you can only activate it from a running system anymore. I can just pick it at the yes. menu. Uh, and okay. then separately, uh, I think it was Eric, I forget his name now. Uh, where's my link here? Grab the link. Uh, started the project originally to add ZFS to the EFI loader so that you could boot mm -hmm. ZFS. Uh, but uh, Steve Hartland has uh, continued that work and got it working. And so his patch here is uh, just pending a couple reviews to be able to be committed. And then uh, we'll have our EFI loader. We'll be able to draw a beastie menu, have the ZFS boot environment menu, and boot ZFS. That's uh, so these things... Uh, Actually, I don't think any of the 
people that were working on originally knew that the other people were working on the other bit of it, but it just happened mm. to all come together just in time so that 10.3 <laughs> should have everything. Um, That's going to be great. I'm going to have to scramble a little bit to see if I can get Gelly to work in EFI. Yeah, that would be the la very last yes. thing we need. Uh, so uh, once we once we have that working, I mean, there's no other use case for Grub yep. that I, I really care yeah, about. Other than <laughs> running a bunch of different operating systems, I suppose. Dual booting a yeah. bunch of things. Sure. Uh, and by the sounds of it, if you want to dual boot FreeBSD in a Lumos, you might be able to do it with the FreeBSD loader. Yeah, that's cool. Um, anyway, so... Yes. Uh, separately, I have a review on Fabricator to add Gelly support to the uh, boot code and loader for BIOS booting. Uh, so this mm -hmm. allows you to boot from UFS or ZFS um, with the regular BIOS boot menu, uh, even if they're encrypted with no unencrypted partition. Uh, mm -hmm. You just have your regular FreeBSD that boot, and uh, in that little, you know, 128k bootloader, it actually has enough Gelly to be able to uh, decrypt. The partition to load the loader uh which then yep. the loader was expanded slightly to have gelly support to be able to load the kernel uh and then mm -hmm. you can boot regularly uh and it also takes advantage of the work uh you colin and devin did previously uh so that you only have to enter the password uh once rather than oh, if nice. you had uh, okay. when during my test setup i purposely did it with a mirror and mm -hmm. originally you had to enter the password six times for the two discs <laughs> once for the boot code, once yeah. for the loader, and once for the kernel, uh, each <laughs> times two disks. Uh, yeah. Now it's just one time. If you have different passwords for each disk, it will be slightly annoying, actually. But, you know. Oh, you know. Hey, that's exactly. up to you. If you set it up that way, then you expect to type them yep. in. <laughs> uh, but it purposely will not run you out of your number of attempts uh, because of that. That's cool. But, uh, yeah, so hopefully uh, all that can happen, and I will also... Scramble to see if I can't get the Gelly stuff done for UEFI uh, before 10.3. Well, we've had all these patches in our current builds for a while, so I guess we're going to be doing a 10.3 PCBSD, so I'll need to uh, merge some of our changes, like B admin, we made some changes, so if you're not using Grub now, it knows how to do things the right mm -hmm. way and not need to generate a config file and all that. So I guess I'll be backporting some things as well, so we can include those all in 10.3. It should be great. Yeah, if you can get your Jelly stuff in there, I can switch my laptop which would make me very happy. Yes, that would be uh, <laughs> quite a good thing, I think. Yes, yes. And maybe we'll see more developers with their fully encrypted uh, root ZFS uh, laptops. would be great. Yes. Okay, well, we got an exciting interview coming up here in just a moment with Josh Petzl of FreeNAS fame, so you want to stick around for that. But uh, before we mention or get to that, we, of course, we want to mention right now the first sponsor this week, which is going to be DigitalOcean. Uh, website for that, digitalocean.com where you can go and get signed up, create an account, start rolling droplets pretty much immediately. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the droplets are super cheap. I mean, they go all the way down to $5 a month, and you can get a free BSD loaded right up in there. It's all natively supported. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you can do OpenBSD as well. NetBSD uh, recently. Yeah, NetBSD. Because uh, they actually give so. you an HTML5 console. Uh, so even on a device, without you don't need Flash or Java or anything. And you go to their control yep. and you can actually get two you know, a serial console on your virtual machine. And so you can basically trick it into running whatever OS you want. Uh, and mm -hmm. you can also rent the virtual machines by the hour, uh, in which case which the uh, the cheapest one is 0.7 uh, cents per hour. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Well, if you want to make that last a long time, I mean, they're giving out a $10 mm-hmm. credit right now. So if you type in the coupon code FreeBSD now, uh, it'll give you a $10 credit towards your account, and you can use it for running a VM straight for a couple months. Or like uh, Alan mentioned, if you're doing it hourly, that may last mm-hmm. you a while. <laughs> so definitely an easy way to play with some different BSDs up in the cloud. And, of course, they have data centers all over the world, so you can try and pick something closer yeah, to Yeah, they have uh, San Francisco, New York, Toronto, uh UK, Netherlands, Germany, and Singapore. Okay, great. So yeah, go to digitalocean.com and get signed up today. And if you talk to them, let them know that you heard about it here on BSD Now. Okay, we're joined now by uh, Josh Petzl. First of all, you've been on the show before, but thank you so much for uh, coming mm-hmm. back. Sure thing. Nice to uh, Nice to be on again. So I guess your title now at IX, titles tend to change there and, you know, who knows what it is every week. But I guess at the moment it's Storage Architect. So we're glad to talk to the architect today. And uh, we got lots of stuff to talk about related to storage and ZFS. I, I try not to use my matrix voice. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's too bad. If we didn't get you a few weeks ago, we could have had the uh, Santa hat and beard back maybe. You know. you know, I dug it up out of storage. Uh, I was almost going to wear it today, and then I was like, nah. Uh, yeah, just a late. couple weeks too late. <laughs> oh, well. Yes. All right, so you got the next order, yeah. Alan? Yeah, uh, so um, we heard that you've moved uh, away from the Bay Area, and you're now in a new location. How is it treating you? You know, it's not too bad. This is home. Mm-hmm. So uh, my wife grew up in, in very northern Wisconsin, up on Lake Superior, Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, so we're halfway in between those. We're in a pretty remote location, northern Wisconsin, but uh, th- this is really our people. So so we fit in pretty good here. That's cool. Um, yeah. Well, Alan was pointing out to me, you're actually farther north than he is. I was I had to look at a map and go, no way, I guess he is. <laughs> yeah, how's that? Yeah, it's the, one of my favorite things to do about living here is troll the Canadians about how I'm going south to be a CCAN this year and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're in Canada. You're in the U.S. It's like, yeah, no. nah. I'm in one of those parts of the U.S. that's north of some of the parts in yeah, Canada. So I, I live in the good part of Canada. That's further south. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how's the internet connectivity up there? How's that work? Well, um, I have far better internet here at my house than I had living in Silicon Valley. Oh, uh, so, so it turns out that the inter- internet infrastructure here is relatively new. And there's only one way to bring internet to people who live uh, widely scattered over large areas, and that's via fiber. Mm-hmm. So you'll be happy to know that I have a shiny fiber connection running right to the house. Oh, I hate you. More than, uh, more than both of you. Set that up as fast as you want. They're like, how much do you want to pay for? Do you want a giggy fiber connection? No problem. I, um, I live quite modestly with a 10 megabit connection. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's pretty slow by modern standards, but it's also like seven dollars a month or some crazy thing like that too. So, well, really, with the, it's, the not- it's all about the re- reliability, right? <laughs> yeah. So far, as far as I know, there hasn't been an outage. So I've been living here since July, and mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know, it's never been down. But you guys are killing me, both of you, with fiber on your house. That's it. I'm moving up to where you live, Josh. I mean, gosh, <laughs> hook me up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the meat of this here. So I know you've done a lot of support and stuff with ZFS over the years. So tell us what's the most interesting ZFS bug you've maybe come across so far. Well, um, you know, I was thinking about that. The the most interesting bug that I've ever come across um, 
is we moved from uh, ZFS version 28 to feature flag mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. at the same time that we moved from Samba 3 to Samba 4. And uh, Samba 4 has native support for, for ACLs. Mm -hmm. and, um, and Samba 3 sort of faked it and used, and used Unix permissions behind the scenes. And it turned out that if you did not upgrade your zpool and use the feature flag 5000 kernel modules with Samba 4.1 with a pool created on version 28, you could corrupt your pool. Really? And, yep. Blow away the space map and end up with uh, kernel panics when you tried to import the pool read-write. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we, you know, you had to import the pool read-only and copy the data off and then scrag it and and uh, and rebuild it because, of course, there's no no tools for dealing with a ZFS uh, pool with a bad space map. Mm. So that's probably the most interesting bug. Um, How long did it take you guys to figure that out? Yeah, a little while. <laughs> right. And the, best, the best part about that bug is uh, send and receive snapshot replication would happily send the corruption over to the remote system as well. Ooh. So we actually lost some primary pools and some backup pools um, to that, you know, where the primary pool would go corrupted and then, oh, the backup pool is corrupted as well. Oh. Yeah, that, that was a little less than pleasant. So. But oh, that's probably the most interesting one. So, but the pool wouldn't import, <laughs> but the data was still there. Yeah, yeah, you could import it read only right. because then you don't care about the space mm -hmm. map, and so so that's what we ended up doing. In fact, it ended up on a it was a uh, we ended up doing a uh, uh, Memorial Day recovery run down to L.A. where I loaded my truck up with uh, pallets of four terabyte hard drives and shelves. And ended up driving them down from Silicon Valley to L.A. and over the long weekend recovered a recovered a system that had that problem. So, oh man, <laughs> I guess you don't have to do too many of those up in Wisconsin now. No, no. no. But you know, there's a joke about never underestimate the bandwidth of a station wagon filled with magnetic tape, yep. <laughs> and never underestimate the storage capacity of a full size SUV filled with four terabyte hard drives mm -hmm. either. So, oh, yeah, I think uh, Google still does that experiment every once in a while and finds that it's faster to ship hard drives FedEx than it is to uh, try to use the internet, no matter how fast your internet is. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we had about 300 terabytes in the back of the truck, so nice. Tracy was pretty happy with that. Oh, I bet. Although now <laughs> I can fit that in like eight U's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, so how difficult is it to actually support ZFS in production, uh, you know, especially compared to other file systems? Yeah, so um, there's a few things that are frustratingly game over situations with ZFS that you wish weren't. Mm -hmm. For instance, um, if you add VDEVs that you're not particularly happy about adding, um, you can paint yourself into a corner there. Now there's there's talk about there being detachable VDEVs someday. Um, so um, that I, there's code for that that actually works, but it doesn't work with RAID Z, only with mirrors and stripes. But that does okay. solve yeah. the problem of when you're trying to add a S-log or something and you accidentally uh, add it yeah. as a single disk stripe. Yeah. Uh, so that's... Yeah, that's unfortunate. That, that's, that, that <laughs> is or will be undoable, but not in a way that it will still leave it there as a reminder. 
So any data that got written to it will be remapped to a different drive, but it will stay there as a virtual VDEV that just can't store anything to taunt you about your mistake forever. Right. <laughs> Mocking yep. me silently for years to come. But yeah, I almost feel like... Go forever will dominate your destiny, right? It almost seems like... Anyways, so that's yeah. frustrating. That that can be somewhat frustrating, um, and uh, that that's caused you know caused some problems in the past. Um, it makes it, it makes it frustrating to deal with because a lot of times in a production environment, backing up all the data, destroying the pool, and recreating the pool are, is not a particularly attractive option. Because it'll take like and a week. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, or yeah, that can there can be that. Um, you know, even in some environments where you have the additional storage to do it, simply migrating the data, you know, you can do sends and receives on the back end, but eventually you have to flip the switch. And so that means taking services mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. And when the service is, you know, ice cuzzy and 300 VMs, it is just a lot of times not a convenient time to do mm -hmm. that, you know. Sure. So so that, that can make things challenging. Um, Another thing that can make things challenging is the 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 aforementioned uh, ZFS space map. Um, you know, corruption in there, problems in there. there. There's no there's no check disk. There's no FSIC. There's no anything. I mean, space map corruption is game over. Mm -hmm. um, you can import the pool read only. You can copy the data off, and that's certainly a much better scenario for a lot of people than than the alternatives. However, it would still be nice to be able to repair those pools, um, and and it's just not an option. You know, having the option, right? Is you that know, just that you might you might argue that a 400 terabyte pool might take three weeks to do that too, um, but uh, you know, at least having the option to do it is better than having no no alternative. Yeah, because. Well, is there so, a technical reason why that doesn't exist, or is just nobody's written the tool to do it yet? I think no. I think it's nobody's written the tool simply because it it doesn't scale mm -hmm. very well, and so mm -hmm. you very quickly run into these oh, it takes three weeks, um, well, kind of a thing to do. So and people go, well, nobody would want to do that. In in ZDB, um, there's and, and they're probably right. in, in ZDB, there's but, one that can scan the space map and try to find lost space, but not actually fix yeah. it. <laughs> but not fix it. So what you'd what you'd want to do is rebuild your space map from the blocks mm -hmm. that are in use on the pool. Scan cool. the whole pool for blocks that are in use and use those to build a new space map. And that yeah. tool doesn't exist. And would have the extra complication of more space will probably be allocated in the meantime. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. right. You'd need space for mm -hmm. that space map. Right. And you certainly wouldn't be able to write to the pool mm -hmm. while you were doing it. So um some other things that make ZFS a little challenging. Um, you know, people always knew that long RAID Z groups would take a long time to resilver, mm -hmm. um, and that they would take a long time to scrub, um, especially as they filled up. But I think it took, you know, some of these pools were large enough that it took a couple years to get enough data on them to really reap the, the, the full measure of the consequences of that decision. And so, you know, people were deploying these pools with 30, 10 drive RAID Z2 VDEVs. This is awesome and this is great. And look, I have 400 terabytes of storage and they're amazingly resilient. And then they get to be 70 or 80% full and they have a drive fail. And oh my goodness, it took three weeks to resilver the drive, you know, or it took two weeks to resilver or it took nine days to resilver or something. Um, 
so some of those things are starting to come to light and uh and and those were not immediately obvious properties of zfs mm -hmm. so the other thing that isn't immediately obvious is those resilver times are totally dependent on file size as mm -hmm. well so you know if you have a pool with four billion 4k files on it resilvering a drive in there is a lot different than having a hundred one terabyte mm -hmm. files Mm -hmm. And that wasn't immediately obvious either. So um, I think some of those things are starting to come to light. And that, that does get a bit frustrating because, you know, in those very large pools, if you have a single degraded drive in a VDEV, you have additional redundancy. However, it's not the sort of thing that you want a three-year-old array cranking away at maximum I.O. for nine yeah. days. Mm -hmm. You know, it just doesn't make anybody feel good. Right. And the consequence is, you know, 400 terabytes might just go away here if this goes sideways. So mm -hmm. um, that makes things a little challenging. Uh, you know, certainly the benefits of the RAID Z resilver when the array is empty are, are, is really cool. You know, you can do a drive replacement in seconds on an empty array, mm -hmm. minutes on a lightly used array. But, but as they get full... Um, the the tables quickly turn to favor the hardware RAID controllers. Yeah, so right. I know uh, specifically because of that, in the case of mirrors, there's actually talk of an optional uh, sequential resilver instead of actually walking the metadata and doing the smart resilver because once it's more than about half full, it actually takes longer to do it the smart way. Uh, but yeah. again, I don't know that mm -hmm. that's possible f with RAID Z because you don't actually know where the blocks start and end without crawling through the data. Right. Right, and then, hmm. but yeah, it seems like maybe uh, the ZFS add command should require you to use like the force flag if you want to add a a single striped VDEV to a pool that has any VDEVs that aren't all stripes, <laughs> just to maybe prevent some of that foot shooting. <laughs> yep, yeah, the the ZFS add command definitely warns if redundancy levels mm -hmm. are different these days. Mm -hmm. So, so there is some warning for that, and it has that minus n flag, so that you can always see what mm -hmm. you're doing. Um, so it so just that requires helps. people course, to know to do that, <laughs> and and no one remembers yeah, yeah, until they've shot their own foot off once. <laughs> and yeah, and the other the other problem with FreeBSD is you know your your tendency is to want to use virtualized device mm -hmm. names, and mm -hmm. so. You know, to avoid device name hopping around and making making you sad, and so a lot of times when you're adding devices to pools, you're dealing with GPT IDs mm -hmm. or some other type of label, and so you know you might not even immediately realize that you skipped a line reading glabel list, and uh, you know that's not really the hard drive; that's an SSD, or you know it it, it isn't always immediately obvious that you're doing something that you mm -hmm. don't want to do. So. I get very, very paranoid when I'm running Z, Z pool yep. ad. I, I use the M flag about three times, and am I sure I want to do this? Am I absolutely sure? Am I really, really sure? And of course, you know, FreeNAS and TrueNAS, we've wrapped all that stuff in a GUI, and it's ostensibly user, you know, Proof. user doable. And, and and you always kind of like, hey, we're going to be expanding our pool this weekend. It's like, can we help with that, please? Because that is something you really don't... Well, it's going to be Saturday night. It's like, yeah, you know, I would much rather hop on a call with you on Saturday night than have you do this uh, wrong? deal with the yeah. ramifications of... Yeah. Sideways. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. The desperate Sunday morning. Oh my gosh, what did I do? Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it makes me, you know, expanding storage, it's always sort of a miracle to me when you expand storage and it doesn't, it's always my nightmare, you know, that you go to expand storage and all of a sudden everything vanishes. Sure. And you're like, what, 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 what just happened here? Fortunately, I've never seen that happen with ZFS and I'm, I'm fairly confident, but, you know, when you're dealing with large amounts of data, you know, it's, you know, you 500, 700 terabyte, one petabyte pools and it's just, it, it'd really be inconvenient if they went away. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, no we have a backup, but it would take a it, month to restore. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff is nobody would be nope. very happy about that. So. Mm -hmm. So um, over the last couple of years, we've been talking a lot, of course, about IX, who's a sponsor here. But they've built some pretty darn wild systems that we've shown pictures of and kind of make all the watchers and listeners drool over. So do you have a favorite out of any of the crazy stuff that you know got built down there? Um. You know, we've got some pretty big systems, um, some of them bigger than others. Mm -hmm. uh, that There is some eight-shelf eight units um, out there with four-terabyte drives in them, um, and those would be the old, the old shelves, so they're 45 drives per, per shelf. Oh, wow. Um, you know, uh, a lot of those units were not necessarily optimized for size, but were optimized for spindles for running VMware. Mm -hmm. So they aren't even as large as they could be because mostly mostly they're running VMs and things like that that aren't necessarily space intensive, but are IOPS intensive. Um, you know, the, our standard hardware platform is a dual E5 um, 2600. Of, of some sort and mm -hmm. going up to 512 gigs of RAM. So, so I think some of the stuff, you know, when you start to think about a dual E5 system with 512 gigs of RAM as being mundane, then you know <laughs> you're broken by hardware, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, we have some stuff in the labs that, that is a lot more fun than, uh, than that. And, and at, at one point we built a system with a ridiculous number of disks and uh, we had four terabyte drives in it, and it ended up being shy of a petabyte of storage, so we called it the Terrafiler, mm -hmm. and, um, and that was pretty cool. And then we, we upgraded the drives to six terabytes, and we, we shied away from the obvious name change. And, and people <laughs> marketing, I guess, thought that that wouldn't go over well. So, um, And then on the, you know, on the systems that aren't as as big but yet still impressive we have some all ssd mm. rigs running zfs mm. and um you know zfs isn't necessarily optimized for ssds it, its right path is pretty expensive mm -hmm. and so the performance of zfs you know in an all-out performance war is never going to match things that do less work you know if you look at xfs or ext4 or anything like that they just don't do as much work writing, and they're always going to have a performance advantage. But there still are people who want the benefits of ZFS and the performance of SSDs behind it. Mm -hmm. And so we have several all SSD rigs that we've built. You know, they have 20 or 30 SSDs in them, and they can get fairly crushing performance as well, even though in terms of size, they're not typically very large. You know, you say, well, this is 10 terabytes or 12 terabytes. Um, Price-wise, it's interesting. I was just talking to Warner Losh yesterday about the fact that the Fusion IO Octal cost more than my first house 
Um, <laughs> and that was a big, you know, all flash storage subsystem in its day. And nowadays, you know, we routinely build things that are twice as fast as an octal. And while they certainly, you know, aren't cheap, they, they sometimes aren't as expensive as my car. So mm-hmm. that's uh, a, <laughs> I think you're saying, uh, you know, every couple of years we add a zero to the performance and take a zero off the price. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, most of the problems that you see are probably user created or are more of them the fault of the OS or the management tools or ZFS itself. You know, I see, um, I see all sorts of problems. Um, certainly, Certainly having a copy on write file system uh, available to users is a new paradigm for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. so ZFS put you know, enterprise storage in the hands of people who had never had to deal with enterprise storage. And so you certainly see a lot of problems caused you know, by the fact that, hey, you have snapshots in existence, which means you really can't delete things. And people just, you know, that's a paradigm that people don't mm-hmm. understand. So a lot of full pools. You know, a lot of, hey, I just deleted four terabytes and nothing happened. And, and I ended up with less space than I had before because yeah, of the free yeah, list. <laughs> yeah. So you see a lot of that. You see also a lot of non-intuitive problems that were caused by ZFS itself. And certainly ZFS has, you know, taken a lot of those problems to heart and, and improved itself. Um, or the, the developers have improved at ZFS. So, for instance... Before ZFS had asynchronous delete, um, a common paradigm Mm -hmm. was, well, I put 3 billion files on my NFS server, and now I deleted the data set, and everything went out to lunch. For a week. (laughs) So the system went unresponsive, so I then decided to reboot it. And now it's just stuck, well, with all the lights blinking, and it's not fully booted up, you know. And you had to wait for the delete to happen before it would import the pool. Yeah. Mm And so we did a lot of, you know, finding the TXG group before the delete and rolling back the pool to that and and then saying, yeah, you probably can't ever delete that. <laughs> so having things like asynchronous delete, um, you know, really improved improved the world for ZFS. So I, w- I would say that they've been addressing the problems, you know, adding VDEVs that are the wrong redundancy level. Um, that certainly is a ZFS problem as far as I'm concerned. Um, that ZFS causes. Um, that one I think so, is sometimes even just then, a confusion between the difference of ZFS add and ZFS attach sound similar and they do very different things. Yes. <laughs> yes, that can happen. Or just forgetting to add the word yep. log, you know? Mm-hmm. Zpool add and you forget to type log and all of a sudden you have another VDEV. Yeah. You know? uh, I saw someone, um, ha- that happened to someone this yeah. week and I'm like, well, yeah, and they're like, but we were planning to add another mirror to our set. I'm like, okay, so what you do is add the other drive to that and yeah. then swap out the SSD for, and then now you have the new mirror and then you can add the log properly. <laughs> so right. you maybe yeah. just saved yourself from nerve-wrecking. shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think like most things, users are the source of most, most of the problems, but, but ZFS certainly, you know, ZFS has been around for a decade now. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been around, if you talk to the ZFS developers, of course, it's been around longer it's than It's been that. open source but for a decade. It's been around in the hands of people for a decade, and it's still a young, immature file system. You know, I don't think we found all of the bugs in ZFS that, you know, might not necessarily be a bug. Hey, it's behaving, it's designed. It takes three weeks to resilver. 
you know, but it's sort of, yeah, that's not really very enterprise mm-hmm. usable, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think we probably haven't found all those edge cases, but, you know, as we found some, I, I would say async delete was yes. a huge one. You know, that, that caused a lot of very real problems, not having that. Mm-hmm. And certainly since that's hit, um, it's solved, solved a lot of problems. Um, bookmark support was, was another big one that, that sort of shored up a glaring hole in ZFS. Um, you know, when you're using snapshots for replication, if you accidentally, you know, if your retention time is shorter than the time it takes you to replicate them, you can have all sorts of problems. I have to you start know, over. You're deleting snapshots that you actually need, you mm-hmm. know, and, and bookmarks sort of solve that problem. You know, by letting you by letting you uh, delete things that haven't been replicated yet, and still and still be able to not break your replication. Yeah, that one uh, bit us uh, with the PCBSD package uh, CDN system. As if if one machine got too far behind and missed the window of when enough snapshots existed, basically had to start replication from scratch and resend five hundred yeah. gigabytes over the internet. Yeah, that can be very no fun. Cool. Well, um, so one thing uh, that happened a few months back, you know, we read the article on IX Systems site where you did the blog post talking about uh, being careful using ZFS in a VM, and there was some big scary language in there. And we had a whole bunch of comments and emails, and we still occasionally get those, Alan, where people are like, what, is that? what did that mean? So can you elaborate a little bit exactly on what that blog was talking about and what to do or not to do, I guess, when running ZFS in a VM? Sure, sure. So well, the first thing to point out is VMware is the single most platform popular platform for running FreeNAS there is. Mm-hmm. Um, FreeNAS systems phone home and tell us what they're running on. And VMware is the most popular standalone platform um, by like heads and shoulders. So lots of people virtualize FreeNAS. And of course, FreeNAS is ZFS under the hood. So, mm-hmm. so that's the only file system they're running. So the the thing about virtualizing ZFS is you're you're abstracting the disks away from from ZFS, which means it's no different than running it against a SAN LUN or running it against a RAID controller. ZFS no longer has direct control of the hardware. Mm -hmm. And so you just need to ensure that the things that are being done to those those devices is not not something that, that ZFS will get upset about. So, for instance, if you're virtualizing ZFS and the backend LUNs have a RAID controller, you need to turn the write cache off on the RAID controller. You need to make sure that any scrubs that are being done by the RAID controller itself are not overlapping with scrubs being done by ZFS. So you have to take some additional steps, and the consequences of not taking those additional steps are they can stomp on each other and cause pool corruption. Mm-hmm. So, and I've seen pool corruption in the form of the pool won't import anymore, or mm-hmm. or it'll corrupt the space map, and you can't import read write anymore. So, so we we've always recommended that you know virtualizing ZFS is okay, as is running it on a RAID controller, as is running it on a SAM. Lots of people do that. For instance, Delphix, that's what they do. Yeah. There's ZFS on top of a SAM, right? It, it's clearly safe to do. However. It involves making sure that you know you've turned off the write cache on the rate controller for those LUNs, or that you've you know disabled the parity check jobs on the rate controller, or that you make sure they're scheduled at a different time than the ZFS scrubs. Um, and so, if you do those things, then then virtualizing ZFS is perfectly safe. 
Mm -hmm. um, running running a system that has ZFS in a VM pretty safe. In fact, we do it all the time. The, the vast majority of FreeNAS and TrueNAS development is done in VMs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't we don't store data there. Um, you know, long term, but you know, I, for instance, the IX Systems mail server is a VM and it's running ZFS, so it can be done safely. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to be a little careful about it. So, there's some extra precautions to take. You know, things to plan out ahead of time before you just nilly willy deploy it and find out Correct. the hard way, right? And I'd much rather scare people with you shouldn't do this. It's a bad idea to do this. Don't do this, and have them find out some more information about it and say, "Okay, I'm doing this safely." Then to say, "Yeah, it'll be fine." When there's some, you know, every RAID controller made has the write cache enabled. Right, because that's what makes it which fast. Is, yeah, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, a, a, a bad deal when you're sticking ZFS on a VM underneath it. Right. So, so yeah, you don't want somebody that doesn't understand all the facets of it to be like, "Oh, I'm going to run." Uh, you know, this on top of uh, in in a VM on top of a RAID controller because Josh said it was okay. It's like no, no. Right. Josh said don't right. do it unless you're very sure you know what you're doing and you've ticked all these right. boxes and made sure you've actually got it set up correctly. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. uh, so to get a more uh, experienced field ops perspective, uh, what do you think about ZFS with versus without ECC memory, and is it any more dangerous than running something other than ZFS? Well, um, the answer, as always, is it's complicated. Right. And and this is a very touchy political situation because some people who have a lot of experience and knowledge about ZFS have weighed in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm pretty sure Matt Ahrens has said there's no need for ZFS to have well, ECC. Well, his quote was more, so. you always want ECC, but if you can't have it, you're still better off with ZFS than using EXT4. Yeah, there we mm -hmm. go. All right, so 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 let's talk about that for a second. So, if you have ECC RAM and something goes haywire, your system will either stop or ECC will fix the problem. Right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have ECC RAM, your system will happily go lucky scribbling on disks, whatever it tells it to do. The problem comes in with ZFS is once again there's no way to fix things like broken space maps. Mm -hmm. And so if you have non-ECC RAM and it's been happily scribbling on your pool and it happens to scribble on your space map, that's a game over thing. So, so you know, your, your pool is gone. If you have non-ECC RAM and EXT4 or XFS or anything like that and it scribbles on your storage device, you run FSIC and it repairs the storage. Sure, you might have some files that are scragged, you know, because FSIC isn't going to make corrupted files go away. But at the end of the day, it will happily move that stuff into lost and found, and, and you'll be able to mount up your file system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in theory, um, while, you know, the advantages of ZFS are nice to have, it is a bit dangerous to run non-ECC RAM and have hardware failures with with ZFS simply because there are a lot of scenarios in ZFS that are game over. So, so we don't ever build anything that's non-ECC. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I have to admit that I have very limited experience running non-ECC RAM on ZFS. So I had some systems at home for several years that had non-ECC RAM. And other than that, it's just not something we we choose to choose, choose to uh, don't want our chance to deal it. with. Yeah. And and quite frankly, anytime you're dealing with a system with a large amount of RAM, ECC becomes necessary just just from right. Well, it's, you know, you, most motherboards won't support yeah. more than 32 gigs of RAM without ECC anyway. <laughs> right, right. So, so I always recommend to people that they run mm -hmm. ECC, and there's plenty of plenty of consumer stuff out there now that has the ability to run yes, ECC. Like the little so, atom boards and. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, I think okay. in the end, other than obviously the space map uh, is kind of a, a Achilles heel of ZFS still. Uh, but if something happens to the contents of a file, ZFS is more likely to be able to actually tell that that happened and give you an error rather than the corrupted data. Whereas if you corrupt just a file, FSEK on uh, ext4 isn't going to find that. No, and, no. And so, I mean, BitRod yeah, is a real yeah. problem, on, uh, especially as disks get larger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can easily, for... You know, under a thousand dollars these days, be sitting on twenty-four or thirty terabytes of storage, and anytime you put, you know, fill that up, the the chances of bit flips and files being corrupted, and you know, I mean, that, that's significant. You know, if you run a if you run a pool that's forty terabytes and don't scrub it for a year and run scrub, I can guarantee you, your chances are good that you're going to find corrupted files. That ZFS will either fix or flag as as I can't fix this depending on your redundancy mm -hmm. level. So so having ECC RAM, you know, is is a safeguard against hardware mm -hmm. failure. You know, either the system will stop or or it will fix the problem. Um, but you know, it, it all depends once again on how. You know how important mm -hmm. your data is. I have data at home. I could care less if I lost it. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if if I really need to, I can recreate it. I have other data that is that is mm -hmm. irreplaceable. You know, so so the data I have that's irreplaceable, it goes to two systems at home. It goes to a backup system, and it goes yeah. up to the cloud. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and certainly, my systems at home have ECC RAM, but. You know, it wouldn't be a huge loss if I lost the pool on one of them. Right, but yeah, in the end, sure. the whole reason you're using ZFS is to protect you against hardware failures on the disks. So why wouldn't you also protect yourself from hardware failures in the RAM? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, what about uh, SSDs? Cool. Uh, especially, you were talking about all SSD pools uh, because SSDs are doing a bunch of, you know, uh, was it like a flash redirection layer or whatever, and there's moving blocks all over the place without telling you. Do you ever see? Uh, unusual amounts of errors from SSDs. You know, I I haven't. Um, but but SSDs have their own unique challenges with ZFS. For instance, um, when ZFS grew trim support, um, it was trying to trim 128k blocks, and that exposed <laughs> problems in a lot of SSDs. So, um, for instance. Uh, you know, you'd run into situations where you'd run zpool create, and the system would just go out to lunch for hours. You know, mm -hmm. while while the SSD was trying to digest this. Hey, it wants me to trim all of me. You know, but in small chunks, not all at once. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, that that was a problem. Um, we've had issues. I've had issues with SSDs that the firmware simply locks up. Yeah. I, I've seen I've seen SSDs that that you know you have trim on, and over you know a couple of weeks, the firmware finally just hangs the whole SSD. I, I've I've seen particular models of that. Um, and so, for instance, we've had to blacklist doing trim on certain SSDs or simply not mm-hmm. use them um, for ZFS. So, so they definitely uh, pose some challenges. Another challenge that SSDs provide that isn't really, really um, related to ZFS per se is they can handle much higher queue depths than spinning disks, and ZFS is tuned to not uh, blow blow spinning disks up. So you can turn the if you have an all SSD pool, you can turn the queue depth up and uh, get far higher performance mm-hmm. out of them than you would with the default ZFS tuning. However, ZFS doesn't allow that tuning per pool. Yeah. And so if you have a system that has an SSD pool and a spinning disk pool, you can be challenged to find uh, uh, a uh, tuning that doesn't tank your spinning disk pool or your SSD pool. Because of course, the things the SSD pool wants will bring the bring the spinning disk pool to its knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, if you tune for the spinning disk pool, you're really crippling the performance of the SSD pool. Yeah, I think the the default so. like write queue depth limit is ten, and uh, 10. if you yeah. set it much higher on a spinning disk, then it could take whole seconds to get a read request answered. Yes, because oh, it gets at the back of this long line of things that have to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, a, a seventy-two hundred RPM disk has an average latency of seven milliseconds, which means it can do, you know, somewhere around a hundred to one hundred and fifty IOPS per, you know, and uh, if you set the Q depth to thirty-two, you will definitely feel that. Uh, definitely beat what you sow there. Right. A little suffering Whereas involved. you know, a modestly expensive SSD can do. A thousand times that. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So if you could offer, just pick, say, one single best piece of advice for a system in who's getting ready to deploy ZFS somewhere out in the field, what would it be? <laughs> That's right. a challenging one. <laughs> um, I would say be familiar with the, the attributes of a copy-on-write file system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so if you've got experience with Waffle or with EMCs or or something like that, um, transfer that that experience and that knowledge to ZFS. If you don't have experience with a copy on write file system of any sort, do some reading, because there there are things there are just attributes of copy on write file systems that aren't intuitive, uh, and since ZFS is so different from log file systems or from you know journal based file systems that we're all familiar with. Um, you can run into some really non-intuitive behavior. Mm-hmm. So, okay. uh, so if you could see any one feature of ZFS uh, be implemented, what would it be? Oh, that's easy. So, um, I would really like to see whole pool replication mm-hmm. between two pools, block level, real time, whole pool replication. So, like continuous replication. Ooh. Yeah. Yes. Not right. snapshot based, not async at all, but just you send this TXG group to this pool, you send it to that pool, um, and, and, a, and a, the ability to keep two pools in sync on an IO by IO or TXG by TXG basis. So. And uh, that's kind of cool. Is anybody working on that? As far as you know, 
I know somebody that would like to do it if they could convince their employer to pay them to do it. Yeah. I, I've done some precursory exploration and I've always, you know, I think it'd be a really cool feature to have and certainly there are business cases for it and working for a storage-based ZFS company, you know, tried to poke and prod in the appropriate direction. As far as I know, nobody is actually actively working on this project at all. However, it has been discussed to some degree and, and, uh, and um, you know, some how would we implement this types of things have been kicked around. What technologies could this apply to? You know, is there anything that's relevant? Um, you know, that, that sort of investigation has been done. So I somehow feel that perhaps, um, you know, it, that, that could see the light of day. Would I work out on myself? I always, I always like to joke <laughs> that I'm the most dangerous type of C programmer. And the most dangerous type of C programmer is the one that can get their programs to compile. Mm-hmm. And that's right. <laughs> so, so the ability, to, you know, the, the barrier to entry to programming C is, is pretty high because if you, know, you can't even get the thing to compile, then at least you know, you're safe. I'm unfortunately slightly more skilled than that. However, I'm not much more skilled than that. So I always, I always joke that, that when, when I'm committing C code to anything, which I do from time to time, you, know, you look out. Right. <laughs> so, so probably it's not something I would work on myself um, in terms of writing the C code, but definitely developing the feature and helping to test it and coming up with use cases and, you know, okay, that's not quite right. I would, I would love to be involved mm-hmm. with um so so we'll see well there you go if anybody's working on this or interested you need to get in touch with john yes i, I will really uh, cool make a connection between two people for that cool so you have any interesting war story i guess uh the most difficult recovery or anything you could think of that would be interesting to the audience here you know there's there's been a lot of things that i've done um over the past several years um you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the really interesting problems were were the culmination of a long period of research. Um, for instance, when ZFS first debuted, it had very um, unpredictable write times, write latencies, and that made it challenging to use for block storage. And having that, you know, having that come together such that ZFS was an effective block storage. Um, low latency type of deal or predictable latency, there was a lot of time involved in that and a lot of things had to happen. A lot of work was done. Um, and, and that certainly didn't happen overnight. You know, that was a culmination of a year's worth of, a year's worth of, uh, of, of effort. Um, we've also done some, you know, some pool recoveries where, where, you know, the, the aforementioned, load a bunch of drives in the in the truck and take them down to LA um, but I think a lot of the the current problems are really just how ZFS interacts with things like Samba things like NFS and those are not very interesting war stories it's I went into the lab with a bunch of NFS servers and came out with you know here's how here's how we need to do this here's how we need to do that uh, tuning wise to, to get to a satisfying you know a satisfying performance profile so one of the challenging things with running ZFS on big NFS servers is, you know, big, high, busy NFS servers on 10 gig e require quite a bit of memory for, 
for NFS and for just the kernel for doing 10 gig networking. And ZFS, of course, is, is always memory hungry. And so finding the right balance between enough memory to not hobble your 10 gig performance versus not taking so much memory away from ZFS that you hobble its performance and finding the right balance has been, uh, has been fairly, fairly um, satisfying. And hopefully, you know, we'll get some better auto-tuning so that it doesn't require a maestro to, you know, mm -hmm. turn all the dials and that yeah, thing. Yeah. But um, some of those scenarios have been have been fairly, fairly satisfying. But, you know, free RAM is wasted RAM, but any contention will just kill all your performance. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you know, ZFS contention for RAM typically means kernel panic, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if the ARC can't, get an allocation it thinks that it deserves, you know, it, it yeah. deadlocks deadlocks the system or live locks or kernel panics or all sorts of bad, nasty, horrible mm -hmm. behaviors. So, you know, you, you tend to want to be very conservative and then, you know, and then you start to say, okay, I've, I've got a system with 128 gigs of RAM. I'm being really conservative with the ARC and I've set it to 70 gigs. Now I can turn up NFS memory arbitrarily high as I want because certainly networking and NFS aren't going to need 30 gigs of RAM. And so then you turn it all up and then you go, okay, we found the optimal value here. Now we need to increase your arc size. Well, we'll have to reboot the system. Well, we'll find a window for that in March, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. because you can't dynamically increase arc. Or you go the other way and you say, well, we don't want to have to reboot the system, so we're going to just set the arc to 116 gigs. And then you're constantly in fear, okay, is this the NFS memory change I make that tips the system over and causes it to deadlock? You know, so, so some of that stuff is, is a little bit challenging, uh, finding the optimal values. And, of course, you know, networking memory requirements, NFS memory requirements, those are all so workload dependent that you can't come mm -hmm. across any sort of, you know, any sort of useful um, defaults. You know, we have customers that we've had to turn the file handle allocation off, right? Because because otherwise, you know, 30,000 people try and open 80,000 files and suddenly NFS wants, you know, 900 gigs of memory. And, oh, man. So we've just had to disable it, you know, in order to provide them with a usable system. So so it all it's all across the board. You know, other people, their idea of an NFS server is two systems are going to access this and they want to run wide mm -hmm. open, you know, read or write performance. So you, you just can't come up, come up with usable, you know, global defaults that work for everyone. It, it does require some, some Well, yeah, I can and, see, you know, a, a university where every student's home directory is on this NFS server versus a thing where, you know, we have two or three virtualization <laughs> machines that are just going to read giant VM images off your NFS, right? Right, right. Uh, do you yeah. think it would be possible to someday have the arc limit be runtime tunable? Yeah, in fact, I've talked about that quite a bit, and, and I think we understand what the how that would work. It would essentially be setting a high water mark instead of you can't forcibly evict memory out of arc, but you could lower the high water such that as it DL as things fell off the arc, it wouldn't allocate new mm -hmm. things. So mm -hmm. you could do that fairly easily, and then increasing it, of course, would be pretty straightforward yeah. as well. So, oh, so hopefully that will see the light of day someday. Too. Yeah, the one I was having this morning, actually, and yesterday morning, uh, was uh, the daily uh, fine that 
goes through the system and tries to find the uh, set UID binaries or whatever. Uh, ever since I upgraded yeah. to the latest head three days ago, uh, now it makes the other allocation in ARC go up to about six gigs out of my 16 gigs. So the, my ARC yeah. limit is set to six gigs out of 16. And so it's got six gigs of, you know, MFU and MRU, but then also six gigs of uh, other. And then and then yeah. there's no RAM left for anything else. <laughs> right. And yeah. it was, uh, I don't know what made it start doing this just the other day. Yeah, and, and of course, the ZFS answer to that is, well, serves you right for trying right. to run it on a system with 16 yeah. gigs of RAM, right? <laughs> Isn't that crazy that we think that that's a low amount of RAM? Yeah, I days? remember when, you know, yeah. 512 was a lot. Wow. <laughs> now, 512 yeah. with an extra triple zero on the end is kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <yep>. Oh, well. <laughs> so what keeps you motivated to work on open source stuff like this? Um, you know, I think, you know, I was thinking about that a little bit. I've been involved with FreeBSD since the mid nineties. Um, and, and that was really more of a pragmatic thing than, than anything else. When I started my involvement, you know, my employer was trying to convert to open source. And so it was just easier to be involved in the community, um, than it was to, to constantly try to have to maintain local patch sets and all of that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's just sort of a uh, um, a couple of things. One, the reality is working on commercial code bases, they're all sort of ugly. Um, and the mo more closed source and secretive they are, the more the uglier they are. Because you know, as a as when you're writing code, you're you're trying to solve the immediate problem. You're always under a time crunch. There's always resource constraints. And you can do some fairly hideous things um, no and just go, you know, well, I hope nobody ever sees this because if they do, they will hate the person that wrote it and think they're an idiot, but they're not under my constraints. So here's the most horrible hack I've ever written, you know, mm -hmm. um, but you can't open source those kinds of things because there's always people who are going to look at that and go, dude, uh, really, you yeah. know, like, come on. And so. So open source really, to me, becomes sort of, you know, you, you sludge through the day and you're kind of sludging through a mud pit, you know, and it's all dirty and hacky and you're kind of going along. And, and certainly we try and do things the right way, but a lot of times there's other concerns other than the purity of engineering, right? Mm -hmm. But when you get to get home and, and take the cover off of that beautiful thing, that pristine, beauteous thing, you, you can kind of hey, I'm going to do this right or not do it at all. And, you know, a lot of what's going on in open source is, you know, people who are doing it right or not doing it at all. And sometimes you have companies committing code and then you have a bunch of people going, ah, what horribleness have you inflicted upon us? Allow us to make that more beautiful for you. Um, but but I, I just find it refreshing. Mm -hmm. It's just in a world of of sludge and awful hacks and things open source is oftentimes a much higher quality code base than than what you'll run into otherwise and and so uh, it's nice to, to work on that i also try as much as possible to to provide value to people like somehow i feel like if i've lived my life and it didn't benefit anybody then what was the point mm -hmm. and so i i like to think that 
somehow I made the world a slightly better place. And if it was using open source to build a system that did um, research into genetic diseases, then you know the world was a slightly better place. And and so that motivates me as well to keep to keep working on this. And you know I think you know why do I use FreeBSD? Why why you know ZFS? I I don't really have a good answer for that other than it was just circumstance. You know when I said to a friend of mine a long time ago I'd like to learn Unix. He handed me a FreeBSD CD. You know, mm-hmm. um, when I when I was in college and the chem lab was full of Sun OS machines. You know, it, it's more circumstance anything as to why I use BSD. But eventually, you just get to a point where it's like, well, yeah, this could be any project. Like I could contribute to Postgres or Linux or whatever, but but I don't, and that's not what I've been doing. And so, you know, there's a certain level of ownership. That, that would just make it very challenging to just go, oh, you know, the pencil is red, the pencil is blue. I switched it out for a different project, and it didn't matter, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I think some of those things keep me motivated. Okay. Well, you have any other hobbies outside of open source when you're not doing computer stuff? You know, I like to wrench on cars, but, of course, you know, some of the physical challenges I've faced with has, uh, has uh, uh, you know, put a little bit of a cramp in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I still enjoy things that go fast or make loud noises. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, uh, guns and fast cars and open source software and computers. Like I've often dreamed that I'm going to open like this giant warehouse and, and I, I stole this name from a, from a Steve Jackson game a long time ago, but guys, guns, guts, and gears, mm-hmm. just do computers and guns. And an automotive speed shop and just have it all be under one roof, you know, like, I think that would just be awesome. Like, you know, be like the gander mountain of, of technology geeks. There you go. <laughs> Anyways. But, uh, yeah, so I, I like those kinds of things. And of course, you know, living out in the woods here in Wisconsin allows us to do outdoorsy stuff, you know, and, and do all that fun stuff. And, and I definitely enjoy that. So, yeah, cool. Cool. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing that shop open up someday. I yeah. visit that. <laughs> right, well, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we let you go? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, thank yes. you so much for spending time with us today, Josh. We, we really appreciate that. Okay, we're back. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Josh Petzl. That was a lot of fun. Thanks. We always enjoy having him on the show. So thanks again, Josh, for taking the time to do that with us today. So uh, before we get into the news roundup, though, uh, coincidentally, Josh works at IX, and hey, we got to mention them because they're the next sponsor of the show <laughs> this week. So ixsystems.com slash BSD now, where you can talk to the guys over there, and it's people like Josh Petzl, who you just saw on the show. Exactly. And uh, these guys definitely know what they're talking about. So that gives me a certain measure of comfort when I need to order something. Like, these guys have been there, done that, and probably built far wilder stuff than, well, yes. than you're you probably going to need off the shelf. When I so. built my first really big ZFS server with, like, 30-plus hard drives in it, I was like, mm-hmm. so I could lay out the RAID Z this way, this way, this way, or this way. I'm not sure which one's the best. And in the mm-hmm. middle of our conversation with the salespeople, I get an email with Josh explaining what the advantages and disadvantages are and what he thinks I should do. But, you know, when I might consider doing it this other way for X reason or Y reason or whatever, and kind mm-hmm. of just gave me the information I needed to make that decision. 
Yeah, just having that kind of expertise under the roof there at IX, I mean, really makes all the difference because you can call, you can get an answer, and they can you know go as technical as you need or just give you, hey, here's our recommendation. You're doing this. This is just going to work better for you. And uh, just having that expertise is great. But, of course, couple that with their white glove service where they can you know build everything small to the Freenas Mini up to these powerhouse, what do you say, 8U system? Well, it was eight uh, separate sleds, which I think are two or four U's each, each one oh, full gosh. of 45 discs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If you want to take build a storage server that takes up an entire rack. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they can work mm-hmm. that out for you. <laughs> so, anyway, again, guys, get in touch with them today. Go to ixsystems.com slash BSD now and uh, get your new system prepped for 2016. Mm-hmm. If you do order something interesting or a little unique or different, uh, just email us. Yes. We'd love to hear how the experience went. And, uh, you know, pictures are appreciated, yes. too. So pictures are nice. On the, on the show occasionally. <laughs> okay. So next up, we have uh, in the news roundup here. I know we've talked a little bit the last couple of weeks about uh, retro BSD and light BSD. Well, they're still making some more news mm-hmm. here. So you want to fill us in what the first one is here? Alex? Yeah, it's like retro BSD. Yeah, so uh, retro BSD. I got a bit of background on it after the show the other week. Mm-hmm. Uh, is basically uh, a continuing version of uh, the old two BSD, which I think is up to two point eleven now, uh, and it's mm-hmm. specifically for running on PDP eleven type systems. Um, and so in this case, they uh, have some new hardware called an ESP32, which gives you a dual core system, but each of the cores is only 160 megahertz. It has okay. a whopping 400 kilobytes of RAM and apparently fast Wi-Fi up to 140 megabits a second. A dual cores with 400K memory just doesn't sound right. To yeah, me. it's, it's just, like... It's so foreign. Yeah. Uh, and then it has a Bluetooth low energy and uh, some other low power options. Uh, hardware enhanced AES and SSL uh, and uh, lots of different peripherals you can attach, like SPI, SDIO, huh. uh, I2S, I2C, etc. That is pretty crazy. I guess for the people who think the Raspberry Pi is too cushy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> That is crazy. Uh, well, I think the big thing is it probably uses even less power. Uh, so if you're going to build something mm-hmm. battery-operated, it probably uh, will run go. a lot longer than what you can on Did the... Do they have any use cases listed, what they're what people are using I'm not for? entirely just... sure what people are using it for. <laughs> huh, interesting. All right, well, how about the next one with light BSD? They're a little bit more up to speed. We're all the way up to 4.4 BSD yes. now. Yes, and this is uh, they got it running on the PIC32, which I think uh, is the machine that we covered retro BSD running on. Uh, previously, mm-hmm. that's the one yes. with a 512k memory, and what do they say here. I guess you wrote down crypto offloads. Yes, uh, which is yeah. So this one has 512k of RAM and runs uh, 200 megahertz uh, MIPS 32 M class uh, core machine. Uh, but yeah, with the, having the crypto engine and a bunch of other stuff, it's like you don't really think of a crypto offload on a machine with 512 kilobytes of SRAM. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so RetroBSD is a 16-bit port of the old uh, 2.11 BSD, whereas uh, LightBSD is a port of 4.4 BSD, uh, mm-hmm. and they got it running here. And uh, apparently, you get about uh, 200k of user space memory uh, in the basic build. Hmm, interesting. That's uh, <laughs> well, fun times. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, we had another thing come in this week where an article was written discussing this mm-hmm. and. Uh, over at thevarguy.com, we have a link here talking about how BSD Unix has been resurrected for the uh, embedded Internet of Things market, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But they specifically mention retro BSD and light BSD by name. But uh, the point he makes at the end of the article is 
that uh, this is an exciting development for embedded VARs who at least now have an alternative, uh, different licensed open source OS they could potentially use. So well, yeah, especially you know under a BSD license. If you're building something there, you need it to be low power because you're going to build it into, you know, a battery operated toy or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you need something you know maybe smaller than what you can squeeze out of a Raspberry Pi or even you know something like the Omega here. You know, even mm -hmm. if it's only this big. Uh, you need something that's not going to, you know, require a constant 5-volt draw from, you know, a bunch of batteries to be able to keep running. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's not... But you still get an operating yeah, system or a basic operating system. Exactly. You, you just need to do some basic thing. You're not actually necessarily going to be running an application on it. You just need it to mm -hmm. basically be a microcontroller with open source software that you can actually work with. Hmm. Okay. Definitely interesting. Of course, we will bring you more information about these mm -hmm. as it seems like they're popping up a little bit more yeah. now. So that's uh, interesting to see. Okay, well, next up we have a Harden BSD. We had a link here up on their website. It looks like Sean Webb has posted something on their site here talking about their new Harden BSD update system. So uh, not to be confused, this doesn't look like it has anything to do with the package MG nope. uh, doing base system updates. This is a completely new thing they're doing. But it uh, looks pretty straightforward. Reminds me more of a free BSD update. But it starts off with creating you know base.txe and kernel.txe and then uh, a separate file for Etsy update. So it looks like they're using etc update mm -hmm. there. But a couple nice things about it, it includes uh, the option to have the kernel name in the update. So you could potentially, or they could be rolling a bunch of different kernels and you could get binary updates for all of them. You can kind of pick and choose at whim. Of course, being hardened BSD, they're very concerned about security. So everything is cryptographically signed and verified using uh, OpenSSL from the base system. And the uh, build system they've put together for this sounds pretty darn simple. Mm -hmm. It just uses uh, shell, git, and open SSL to create nice. the binary updates. So uh, I do like that. That sounds really simplistic. So that's good. Yeah. Hey, and maybe Sean will have to take a look at that for PCBSD stealing that from you if you don't mm -hmm. mind. <laughs> if we don't end up using package and G updating, if that doesn't end up happening. Yeah, in I had an near future. interesting discussion with uh, Peter Wem the other night about uh an idea i had for kind of a stopgap measure to, to give us a binary update mechanism until uh we get in mm -hmm. i'm gonna have to look at sean's because it sounds actually kind of similar uh yeah. and then peter talked a bit about what the freebsd cluster admin team uses to update their machines because they did mm -hmm. one build and deploy it to all their, a bunch of the machines in such a way that they can step forward and backward through uh revisions if it turns out oh we just updated all the machines to this revision and it turns out it has a bug that makes everything crash let's go back a couple yeah. of revisions yeah. um but yeah. yeah well sean just said i should steal away so there you go mm -hmm. instead of done i may have i may have to take a look at this in the next couple of weeks and see if that's something we can do for maybe uh 10.3 mm -hmm. maybe 11.0 i'm not sure yet just depending on what my timetable is like but uh, i saw also you guys mentioned planned features here you know include updating of jails and doing zfs boot environments mm -hmm. making that natively supported so again all good stuff definitely interesting i will have to take a look at that and if you're interested in it take a look at the link there there's a lot more detail than we just covered here but uh yeah, that's good. We definitely need more updating systems. Yes. Now, I assume Sean's watching, so I assume uh, it doesn't need to do the trick where it changes the time of the system while it's building no, this the one updates, I think, the uh, previous update trick. Uh, imagine, I've not actually looked at the tool, but by the name and so on, it looks like it probably doesn't do Delta updates. It just updates all the files. Uh, okay, hey, that works. Yeah, because you know, the tarball of all of the base system is under 100 megs, and I think, mm -hmm. the, or under 200, one of the two. And Anyway, the base and kernel put together are only two or three hundred megabytes uh and while that seems like kind of a lot you know in the end if you're only updating every so often 
Yeah. You know, if uh, for following something like stable or head, where you want to update a lot of things, uh, it makes sense. Now, for a security update, having to you know download three hundred megabytes to change one file, uh, you know, to update bind or something, may seem mm-hmm. a bit excessive. Uh, but you know, that's something that's already covered by FreeBSD updates, so it wasn't on my list of things. Uh, but you know, I can definitely see for uh, hardened BSD wanting to avoid the complexity that is uh, FreeBSD update. That's right. Yeah, he says here no time tricks and no deltas, so yep. it's just pretty darn straightforward. So again, interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't have to take. I a will look be looking at that closer as well. Okay. Well, let me know what you find mm-hmm. if you get to it before I do. I got a lot of other stuff on the slate still too. <laughs> you got to get but, this uh, stuff, other stuff done for ten three. I know. Get the jelly stuff done. I need the yep. boot support for that. <laughs> I need it for EFI though too, because my laptop's uh, UEFI only. Really? I didn't think they actually made yeah. UEFI only. Well, it's not only um, it does both, but I boot it in UEFI only so that I can do the, oh, uh, the SCFP driver. Yes, the video. frame buffer. Yep. Yeah, because you know sometimes you do want to run in the native resolution of the panel, and yep. especially when it's a 3K panel. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, okay. Well, next up here we have an article about sometimes processors need some love too. So we have a blog post from Brian Everly talking about his long journey into legacy processors and his plans for for the future to start working on better supporting them, specifically looking at OpenBSD ports. And uh, he begins his story of uh, you know his Unix journey from then to today and why this has kind of fostered his love for some of these uh, old and not necessarily so old architectures, but things such as Spark 64, PowerPC 32, i386, etc. But at the end of the journey, he talks about he ended up purchasing some legacy hardware, which in this case, eBay is indeed your friend. And he ended up creating a database that is listing all the major port blockers on each platform. So in other words, something won't compile on Spark 64 and it blocks... 800 other ports or something. So building the uh, priority list of things that need to be fixed and uh, his journey into trying to get some of these things fixed for people running on these legacy platforms. But, uh, of course, this is the great kind of thing, you know, if you're looking for something to do in 2016, this is a great way to get involved and help a project. I mean, probably not even a lot of actual development work at this Mm -hmm. point. He's just uh, testing at this point, seeing what works and what doesn't, what builds and doesn't, what's broken, so they can identify where uh, things need to be corrected. So, uh, Again, keep up the good work, Brian. That's that's awesome, and I'm sure the OpenBSD project will appreciate you doing that. I think he said, and I think he said in the article, Theo specifically asked him to take a look at some nice. of these. So, and I think it's definitely an interesting area for someone who's new and doesn't feel they really have some of the skills. Maybe they think they need to to get started. Is in, mm-hmm. a lot of times with this stuff is just doing the testing of a bunch of different applications on this particular platform is just time consuming. Uh, yeah, and it you know. It's just a matter of identifying what doesn't work and some useful error messages so that someone can look at it. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a great way to get started. But uh, at the same time, you know, there are a lot of stuff that's really not that hard to do. Uh, you know, I was writing my paper for Asia BSDCon about doing mm-hmm. the Gelly support and the bootloader. And it's like, you know, this turned out to not be that hard. Why didn't someone do it? Right. It just Because <laughs> everybody was afraid it was going to be too hard. It's like, well, sometimes if you just sit down and, and start whacking at it, you will realize that, hey, this isn't actually that bad after all. <laughs> well, you say that, Alan. You make it look so easy. <laughs> but I'm serious. I've, I've been doing C for like less than a year. I have no clue mm-hmm. what I'm doing. I just started adding printfs until I understood what was right? happening. <laughs> That is true. Yeah. That is true. And that's one of the nice things about having an open source OS with all the tools and compilers built mm-hmm. in. It's like, let me make a change and run that yeah. right now. Uh, well, the, <laughs> the big advantage is just maybe having a bit of time, you know, that's, that's the advantage of, uh, being, you know, younger and having, uh, 
you don't have much experience, but you do have time, and that's all it takes to get experience is some time. That's right. That's right. So again, hope let this be an encouragement to the rest of you guys. <laughs> Anybody else out there who's looking for an excuse or an avenue to get involved with one of the BSDs, this is definitely something you can do, which will be helpful. Okay, we're back, folks, and we got a whole bunch of feedback and questions, and we got some beastie bits to get to, some interesting stories there. But before we do, we're going to mention our last sponsor really quick here, which is going to be Tarsnap. And of course, the URL for that is tarsnap.com slash BSDNow, where you can go and get signed up right now. I know this is the first show of 2016, mm-hmm. so if you made that resolution around the, you know, the holidays that, hey, I need to start backing up on my data offsite, well, just while you're listening, stop what you're doing. If you need to pause the show, that's fine. Come back. We'll, we'll still be here. You can resume later. But go get your tar snap set up right now. Yeah. Get it done and just check that resolution off your list. You can probably get the backups done and all set up in probably five to ten minutes. You know, get your yep. client configured and everything, and you're good to go. And uh, that is done. It's pretty easy. You just install the tar snap client uh, from your package repo or from source, and uh, it looks the command line looks a lot like tar. You just say, yep. hey, tarsnap, uh, that directory, that directory, and that directory uh, would cause me to cry if they stopped existing. So make sure they yep. exist somewhere else. <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, they contain some stuff that I wouldn't want anyone to see, even Colin. And so mm-hmm. they're uh, backed up. They're encrypted first and then backed up. And that way, no one has the key but you. So be very careful with that key. That's right. It's uh, handily available in a printable format that you can go and Mm -hmm. stick in your fireproof safe or a safe deposit box or whatever you want to do. Yeah, we really really don't want to lose it. Printed it and even laminated it. There you go. Exactly. So so the paper doesn't accidentally deteriorate and you can't Mm -hmm. read characters Mm -hmm. or something. But uh, definitely a good thing to do. So, again, guys, set it up today tarsnap.com slash BSD now. Get signed up, and you'll be shocked how little it costs. But, uh, hey, just the peace mm-hmm. of mind at night, being able to sleep and know that everything's backed up is exactly. a good thing. Okay, so Beastie Bits. So we have a little bit of a funny one to start yes. off with here. So Michael W. Lucas, who we've had on the show before, of course, uh, author, has written a, a post up on his site here talking about uh, the disclaimer he has to put on his yes. books. And he says that disclaimers are often the most useful part of the tech book. So he said he's preserving this one. So uh, without further ado, here's what he wrote. So first draft, not for public distribution, for technical review only, not fact-checked, probably completely checked out. Some information herein not only incorrect, but actively malicious, no idea which is which. Chemically unstable, non-organic, contains nasty leachy plastics. Beware of drop bears, game gators, and sea weasels. Bridge out, one way, no return. Manuscript is morally bankrupt and engaged in karmic panhandling. He said, please send any corrections to the author. Include page numbers and enough surrounding context so he knows what you're talking about. Lucas is already confused. Please don't make it any worse. That is quite a disclaimer. Yes. Uh, So this is for the new FreeBSD Mastery Specialty File Systems uh, book, which talks about all the uh, weird file systems and so on that you might not use every day Mm -hmm. but could be quite handy. Um, And so that book uh, isn't out yet. But you can go and buy the draft version uh, at a ten percent discount off the regular price. So that I think ebooks are normally nine ninety nine, and so you get ten ten percent off that. So it's like eight ninety nine. Uh, and when the book actually does come out, your copy will be updated to give you the final version when it comes out. But if you go and buy the book now, not only do you get the draft to start reading and mocking Michael W. Lucas, uh, mm-hmm. you also get a ten percent <laughs> discount. Nice, nice. So definitely go do that. Sounds like mm-hmm. another good book. 
Okay, well, next up in the bits here, we have just a heads up that the January images for PCBSD 11 current are now available, and uh, we'll have the link in the show notes here where you can grab that ISO or USB images. Um, just a couple quick notes about this month's uh, version. First up, the system updater did go through a round of changes, so we're asking people to check that out, specifically broken into the two stages, so when you... Um, prepare to do an update. Everything is first fetched, of course, and placed on the disk. All the bits are there. At that point, you are prompted to reboot, and you can reboot now or 10 hours later or whenever you feel like it, whenever it's convenient. But at that point, when you reboot, now it'll actually do the update as a part of the shutdown process after everything has stopped and the disk is in a consistent state, and then the boot environment is created at that point as well. So this was done to kind of fix a long-standing uh, bug slash uh, Just gotcha, guess, flaw in really? how... Yeah, kind of a gotcha with the way boot environments work. But before, since we did everything in the background, it was possible where you would do an update and keep working, say, for 10 hours before you reboot. Well, if you made a change to your current boot environment, say, in slash Etsy, you added a user and then rebooted, well, the boot environment that was created at the time of the update doesn't have that change. So there's no good way to try and track everything you did to the system after the update was mm -hmm. prepped. So um, by splitting it up, that fixes that problem. So... The download, of course, is all done in the background. It can be done you know, while you're working, no big deal. So it will take a little longer at shutdown now while it's actually applying the update and doing the, uh, you know, the, moving the bits around to get you updated. But we figure that's a good trade-off because you don't have to worry about being in kind of a weird, inconsistent state the next time you boot up. So that does need some mm -hmm. testing. And you do get a nice little screen, too. So when you get to the shutdown screen, your console blanks, and it shows a, hey, we're doing an update now. Please wait to reboot. But if you hit Control at F2, you can actually view the full like gory mm -hmm. messages and see what it's doing if you're curious. So uh, I, I needed that for yes. my OCD because I like to know what exactly. it's doing at all times. So <laughs> that's good. Also, a bug booting uh, USB media from UEFI was addressed, so those images should be bootable again. So take a look at that. And, of course, this is still built on the, uh, the Haswell branch that's being worked on for FreeBSD. So if you have a Haswell video card or, some, or even an older Intel, please try that out. And, of course, look at the link in the... The uh, announcement here where you can report bugs back to the XORG folks if you're having any problems with that. Okay, so what do we got next yes, here? Uh, we have uh, news from Package Source. Uh, they've uh, yeah. released the uh, 2015 Q3 and Q4 uh, package things, and they have uh, some statistics from them as well. Hmm, okay. Yeah, they got a whole bunch of stuff here, a number of packages they have built. So it looks like about 16,000 on NetBSD current, AMD64, 14,000 on FreeBSD AMD64, that's using Clang, uh, 14,000 plus on SmartOS using GCC, 13,000-ish uh, Linux, 12,000 OpenBSD, 12,000 OSX, uh, about 11,000 packages for Dragonfly, and 10,000 for mm -hmm. Bitrig. Hmm. Okay. That's definitely a lot of stuff they're building uh, there. 172 awesome. new packages, uh, one got renamed, and 58 old ones got removed, although seven of those had a successor of some kind. Okay. Very nice. nice. Very nice. Okay, here. So that was for package source the quarter yep. four. So next... Oh, so speaking of NetBSD, this is actually a good segue in. They held their first uh, reproducible builds conference in Athens. It was a couple mm -hmm. weeks back, so just getting to it now but this is interesting it sounds like they met with about uh, 40 other developers we have a blog post here from Thomas Klausner talking about their meeting in Athens they said there were people from various projects uh, mostly Debian but they also had some Arch Linux FreeBSD uh, what is that GUIX Homebrew Macports Tor and some others mm -hmm. 
who attended a three-day conference about reproducible builds. Yeah, so I guess um, for people that don't build. know what a reproducible build is, the general idea yeah. is, you know, when you download the <coughs> pre-built version of FreeBSD from the FTP site, uh, you should also be able to download mm -hmm. the source code, build it yourself, and come up with exactly the same binary. Uh, so it's basically yeah. removing things like timestamps, the name of the machine it was built on, the name of the user that built it, things like that from mm -hmm. the built files so that you end up with, you know, if you build it now and build it a week from now, you end up with exactly the same result. Uh, and that basically yeah. that allows you to prove that the files uh, you get from FreeBSD are actually what was built from the source code. It also yeah, makes things fine. like Delta updates uh, for packages and base systems so on much easier. Mm-hmm, definitely, for sure. Well, it uh, sounds like they're uh, talking about how to do this in NetBSD, making the base system build reproducible, of course. They said a big part of that work's already been done, but there's a number of open issue issues. Um, making a package source reproducible as well. They said that's going to be a huge mm -hmm. a huge task, of course, because there's just so many different platforms they run on. But uh, they said they have a very good framework, so that should help. Yeah. Uh, the interesting, interesting. Um, so, so the Debian people actually have a reproducible.debian.net where they have a build farm where they try building things, and they do FreeBSD and NetBSD now, and I think maybe some others. Uh, but they have a bunch of different things they can try. So they try you know different host name, a different domain name, uh, setting, you know, environment stuff, building with different time zone, building with different languages, like building, you know, with uh, British English versus, you know, Swiss French and seeing if it results mm -hmm. in different binaries, building with different uh, path environment variables, building with a different user or group name, different, you know, kernel versions, different UMask, all these different things, uh, you know, building on an Optron AMD processor versus an Intel processor to see if that actually results in different binaries at all. I and mean, a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, and so it's nice to see the Debian project actually uh, collaborating with, you know, NetPSD and FreeBSD and so on to, to mm -hmm. solve these problems and make better stuff for everyone. Yeah, this would be neat. I would love to see the day when that yep. just works. That would be really cool. Okay, so last little bit of sad news here, but we have an article over at the Register that uh, mentions here that the designer of the IBM ThinkPad has mm -hmm. passed away. I guess a Richard Sapper also worked for uh, Alessi and Fiat as well, but uh, he was 83 years old, a German industrial engineer who pretty much orchestrated the look of the iconic laptop, which a lot of BSD developers, mm -hmm. you go to a conference, you'll see a lot of ThinkPads. So we did want to mention that here. So, uh, you know, we thank him for his work that he did on the ThinkPad, and I know it's definitely... Uh, going to be a site that you'll be seeing at a lot of conferences going forward. I don't see that changing. Yeah, and uh, especially now that uh, Lenovo has announced they're working on the ThinkPad Retro or whatever, that'll bring back the older style mm. keyboard that uh, developers preferred to the newer one. Uh, nice. So nice. we might see you know, some of this older design coming back. Uh, I don't think we need the floppy yeah. drive back. <laughs> no, no, they can leave the floppy drive. Yeah. That's okay. I don't need that. I, I don't even need the CD drive nope. in mine. Just, really. uh, so, you know. <laughs> keep it light. I, I prefer you... But the keyboard keep, keep cool. the Ethernet port for sure. Don't don't go all Macish on us. Uh, well, so the new carbon, I have that dongle yeah. right for the Ethernet, which mm. is a little, eh. mm. but it is it is pretty much thin enough. I don't think they could do it any other way. Right, but, I don't need my oh, laptop well. that thin. <laughs> right, well, I like it's sure, light. It's but, so light. Yeah. <laughs> hey, when I'm walking up the hill in Japan at Asia BSDCon this year, and I don't have that twelve pound brick in my backpack, <laughs> it'll be nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to decide how many laptops to bring. When I did Cambridge, <laughs> I carried three laptops around. The the T530 with the extra battery, so, you know, my beast of a laptop, and mm -hmm. two X220s. 
Yeah. So you just basically got to bring a hand truck this year and just kind of wheel everything around. Well, right? that's what I, the backpack uh, Michael Dexter has. Have you seen that one where it's it's like wheeled luggage, but then you can open it up and it has shoulder straps and turns into a backpack? I need to get one of those. That sounds like a yeah. really good idea. But now that I got the lighter laptop, it's not. Right, but just in general for traveling, right? Yeah. It's something you yeah, can wheel, but also nice. uses a backpack. Because, <laughs> you know, in Tokyo, wheeling is fine until you get to the stairs for the subway. Then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, transform into a backpack. All right. Yeah. I like that. Oh, I'll have to look for that. We have some time before mm-hmm. Tokyo, so I'll pick one of those up. All right, moving on. Okay, so next up, we've got feedback and questions. So first up, we have uh, Andrew who writes in and asks about high contrast. He said, hey, I started listening to BSD Now a few weeks ago, and I'm listening to many of the back issues. I enjoy the show, and it inspired me to switch from to uh, BSD from Linux. I'm a graduate student with low vision. I'm planning on switching from Linux to PCBSD sometime in the next few days, but I have a few questions, though. He said, first, I'm looking for some graphics program that will make the screen high contrast. Not just a high contrast theme for the desktop, but one that'll make every window open easier to see. I use Windows for most of my work because I have a program that works on Windows that does this. Is there some high contrast application in BSD, or am I stuck with Windows forever? Um, first of all, I'm not. Do you know of any off the top not of your head? Really, no. They, I know there's up. some like theme type things, but not a program that will change everything. Yeah, I'm just Googling here. I assume there's probably some open source programs out there which will do that. And if you know the name of one of them on Linux, for example, I would just check Freshports and see if we have an equivalent uh, analog, something that's been ported over. And if so, you should just be able to package at it and do the exact same config you would do on Linux and and end up with a high contrast desktop. But uh, yeah, I don't know of any specific app off the top of my head which does that. Maybe somebody in the audience does, in which case we would appreciate you sending that in. We'll pass it along Hmm. for them. But uh, he says, secondly, I'm looking at doing some graphics programming, and I wonder if there's a way to get Wayland on PCBSD. He said, I notice it's on FreeBSD. Can I just download the packages from there? He said, finally, I want to use a permissive license when I program. Is there a way in BSD to avoid the GPL? Um, yeah, you just don't license anything yeah, under the GPL. Yeah, don't use anything that is already licensed under the GPL. Yeah, uh, don't, don't suck anything in that does. Um, as far as Wayland goes, uh, it's FreeBSD. So anything you could load on FreeBSD, you could do on PCBSD. I don't really see that being yeah, an issue. Yeah, I think the Wayland port so, on FreeBSD is still very experimental, so it's hard to say. Yeah, it is very early stuff. So you're, you're going to have to do a little bit of messing around to make that work. But yeah, you should be able to follow the same set of instructions, and I imagine there's some building some different sources that you have to install to make that go. Yeah, but, uh, in, in general, PCBSD is just FreeBSD with some sane default mm-hmm. stacked on top of it. That's right, that's right. So, uh, yeah, just make a boot environment before you roll your new uh, system and kernel and try yeah. and reboot so you have something. If it doesn't work, you just it, go back. It's a little sideways. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, next up we have a free NAS follow-up here from John. He said, hi, I sent you guys an email a few weeks ago on TechSnap. I guess yes. I sent that to you, Alan. About a server build I was doing asking for a bit of help on deciding whether or not FreeNAS was a good choice for my server. I was having trouble deciding if it would make a good media server or if I should go ahead and use a Linux distro to run the media component. After your feedback, I ended up deciding to go ahead and running everything on FreeNAS and glad I did. I ended up writing a little post on my blog about how the process went in my build in case you guys were interested. We have the link here if you Mm -hmm. want to take a look. He said, I considered writing back into TechSnap, but I figured this was a more BSD-related topic, so contacting you guys made more sense. I wanted to let you know that I ended up finishing my server, setting it all up, and been using it a few months completely hassle-free, and it's been great. Thanks for the advice, and keep making great Uh, shows. FreeNAS has turned into quite the little media server powerhouse. That's right. A lot of people are using it for Mm -hmm. Plex, I've heard, as one of the big ones. 
Okay, you want to read yes. the next one? Uh, so, Giorgio is asking about custom installs. Uh, he says, uh, it'd be super brief. Uh, is there a way to uh, create a custom installer for FreeBSD? For example, I'd like to install some additional packages and or enable some services uh, so that should uh, I be able to reinstall everything from scratch. I can skip some manual steps before passing the job on to Ansible. Uh, so yeah, there's a couple of different ways. You can actually just um, uh, set up script to run uh, at the end of the install. Um, basically, BSD install is mostly just a shell script. It uses a couple of little programs, but uh, it's mostly a shell script. So if you look at the, I think it's... Uh, user.sbin slash bsd install slash script slash auto. That's the one that actually fires up by default when you run the installer. And at the end of that, you can just add extra instructions. There's also, uh, I think an unmount one is the part that happens near the end. Mm -hmm. um, so you can do it that way. Uh, or you can just write your own installer from scratch. Basically, all you have to do is partition the drives the way you want, uh, extract the tarballs onto those created file system, whether that's UFS or ZFS or whatever, and then do whatever you want on it. Um, ideally, someday, uh, BSD install will then regrow the ability to install packages by default, but I don't know that it really makes that big of a difference. Uh, for building sure. images like VMs and stuff, uh, Colin Percival's written a tool called First Boot uh, that the first time the machine starts up, it can execute a script, and so you can actually uh, teach it to say, you know, well, the first time this VM is booted up, uh, install you know this program in Ansible and this other program and fire off Ansible so it will uh, kick up and, and do all the work. Uh, and then you can basically freeze that. And then when you deploy that six months from now, the versions of the packages installs will be the latest ones from the package repo. Uh, plus, uh, yeah. it can be set up, you know, it'll run FreeBSD update first before it even goes uh, and does anything so that it'll update the OS to the latest version and then install the latest of all the packages and then you don't have to keep re-rolling your images every time versions of the stuff change. Okay. And secondly, he says, I'd like to replace my DSL modem and router with a BSD-based solution. The routing part should be no problem, but I'm not sure about the modem stuff, uh, so I thought I'd ask. Um... I always liked it when the modem was separate from the router because you replace the mm -hmm. router with your BSD thing and the modem can just be the modem. Although nowadays they're often not so much. Uh, I was lucky sure. with the one that I had. Um, you could basically call up the ISP and ask them to provision it in like bridge mode or pass-through mode. Uh, don't tell them you want to run BSD or something. Tell them you have an expensive Cisco router and then th they will right. set it up that way. Uh, and then you can just let the router do all the work. I don't know much about you know hardware support for DSL modems. I don't know even that somebody makes that many DSL modems as a PCI card anymore yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, what would you plug in? I mean, that's probably something yeah. pretty special. Hmm, okay. And that's about it for that one. Okay, well, next up we have a Don who's asking about ZFS speed. He says, hello, Alan, Chris, and JT. Awesome show. I've been listening since number one. Well, we thank you, Don. Appreciate that. He said, I'm hoping you can point me in the correct direction. I'm seeing some serious system performance issues when doing any serious file system I.O., like find or rsync. Or rsync. Um, he gives his details here. It's uh, ACU Zenbook. He's running uh, oh, he's running the January image from PCBSD mm -hmm. already. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> so this is really current. Um, he said he also sees the issue on 10.1 or 10.2 of PCBSD or plain FreeBSD. It doesn't matter if I use the default selections for the installer or tweak it. He said the system sees two separate drives, ADA0's 500 gig and then uh, ADA1's 24 gig SSD. 
If I do a find of my mailder or an rsync of another host, then the system gets very laggy and will appear to freeze ever so often. I'm not sure to look and see why this happens or how to fix it. So he gives us some zpool info here. Looks like yeah, I think the list. most useful bit of information to have in this particular case uh, is what the output of top is when this is happening. Specifically, mm -hmm. there's a couple lines at the top of top. Uh, so mem, which talks about your memory, and arc, which talks about the amount of memory ZFS is using. And those two will give mm -hmm. us some information. Um, in general, okay. a 5400 RPM drive isn't going to be able to do that many IOPS, and doing a find is kind of an expensive operation for a drive like that. So you can expect some slowness, but not. it shouldn't be to the point where it's causing the system to hang momentarily and so on. So it probably shouldn't be as bad as you're seeing. Um, Sure. Other things to look at, if you run gstat, it will give you uh, stats from the geom layer, the lower layer disk level, uh, and it'll show you the number of reads and writes that are happening and how long each one's taking on average. Uh, and um, also, you just zpool iostat will tell you, uh, or zpool iostat 1 will print out every one second how much has been read and written from your pool. Uh, which will give you an idea of how much data is actually being moved around and then comparing that to what you expect to get out of your drive and you'll have a little better idea of what's actually happening. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah, if you want to send that info back in, we can help you take a look or maybe you'll see mm -hmm. something immediately when you take a look at that. But, uh, yeah, we would appreciate I wonder if he's actually running into the same problem that I am. Where uh, when doing a oh, find yeah, on a big directory, uh, in my case it's a directory full of uh, SVN checkouts, um, Mm -hmm. where it's running up the um, other category of memory in the arc, which isn't counted against the arc max. And so even though mm -hmm. I've told ZFS it can only have 6 gigs of memory, it's using that 6 gigs for the arc cache, and then the other part is then taking up the rest of the RAM on my system. Well, he said he sees this on 10.1 right. and 10.2 as well. Yeah. So I wonder, you said that was something Well, I don't know right? if it's that or if something else changed. I don't know. I got to... Just first time yeah. you noticed it. Only or, only once okay. I upgraded did I start having the problem where my system would my file okay. server would become unresponsive. Sure. But, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Send mm. that info and we'll see if we can help you figure it yes. out, Don. Okay. And lastly, we have Fred who asks about dual booting PCBSD with Linux. He said, "Hey guys, I've been trying to get a dual boot system going with a Linux partition and a PCBSD partition. None of the links I've Googled have worked for me." Background, I'd like to migrate to PCBSD from Linux. I feel like the old days when I booted into Linux for everything but games and booted into Windows XP to play games. Until BSD gets a native app for Steam, I think a dual boot would serve me well. He's not interested in Wine, of course. All the operating systems should reside on the boot disk. <clears throat> he said the tutorial should start with disk partitioning with FDisk or Gparted, followed by the sequence for installing Linux. He says he uses Mint and PCBSD, what version you use, any changes needed after the install. Having a second Linux part partition for playing with other distributions would be nice. He said, I'm using ZFS under Linux now with RAID Z1 on separate disks, and it was very simple to recover from a disk failure. I don't know if that Linux partition should be ZFS or not. He's asking if we have any links that will show him how to do this, and he said, oh, glad to be a guinea pig for testing. Please email me if you want more details about questions, etc. Um, I don't know. I haven't done one in mm -hmm. a long time. It's been a while since I've had to do a Linux dual boot. So typically, but what I would do though is boot up ahead of time with Linux or use Gparted and partition a GPT disk. And then as long as I have the uh, the BIOS boot partition for Grub, for example, that they can share, um, I would install PCBSD second because PCBSD uses the newer version of Grub with some custom tweaks to uh, 
to do yep. boot environments, right? But that version of Grub's able to boot Linux as well. So as long as you can get PCBSD loaded on the disk, then you can just add your Linux uh, menu entry to our Grub and you're good to go. It's like booting up on the Yeah, Linux and Grub. I like his idea of having um, his other disks be ZFS and they can actually be shared between his mm -hmm. Linux and BSD. Uh, in that, yeah. in, for those, I would create them under Linux just because Linux is usually mm -hmm. further behind. Uh, so it means that it's the lowest common denominator. So let Linux create the pools, and it definitely won't use any features that BSD ZFS doesn't have. Uh, whereas if right. you create it on a too new of a FreeBSD or PCBSD, it will use features that Linux doesn't know about yet. Yeah, that'll confuse yeah. it. So uh, we maybe have to do a tutorial on that at some point. I don't know if we'll do it for the show here, but I might have one of the guys from PCBSD maybe write mm -hmm. something up for our blog. I mean, maybe that would be helpful. I'll have them try, like, uh, we'll try Mint. Maybe we'll just do exactly mm -hmm. what you're doing here, the Linux Mint with KDE and just kind of do a walkthrough of this is how we dual booted, which I think that would be fun. So uh, we'll see if we can get something working for you there. Um, I don't know if in the handbook there's any information on that or not. Drew may have documented some of that, but I just know personally I haven't done one in years probably. <laughs> so so uh, it's not too fresh in my memory. But, yeah, we'll, we'll try and get back to you with something, Fred, that will allow you to do that. Okay, well, thanks for writing in, everybody. Yes. We appreciate that. So as we close the show, of course, we're going to remind you to keep sending all your stuff in to feedback at bsdnow.tv. That's the only place we monitor. And, you know, you guys have been doing really good sending us stuff in. We find stories that way, and, of course, we get all the feedback that way. But if you have somebody you'd like to interview or you, you're doing something interesting on a BSD and would uh, like to come on and talk about it, you know, we would be more than happy to have you. So please uh, send something into feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll try and get you scheduled for an upcoming mm -hmm. week. And uh, shoot, we might have to talk to these retro guys at some point and find out what exactly are you doing with this? That would be an yes. interesting interview for sure. But uh, yeah, send everything into feedback at bsdnow.tv and of course we will be back same time next week with another episode. We'll see you then.